This is the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. Two, one. And welcome everybody to this episode of the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. I am your humble host, John Allen. It's late at night here in Norway, but it's uh, early afternoon, late morning in California. Hello, Eric. How you doing, man? Hey, good, John. How are you? It is it is twelve thirty, so yeah. breakfast time. You know, I'm I'm used to having you West Coast folks on the podcast. I've actually done episodes in the middle of the night here in Norway to make it fit for the guests. So. Uh, nothing new here. I'll do anything for a good guest and you are a good guest. Good. Yeah. Um, I'm glad to be here. Good, good, man. Um, you know, I've, I've never spoken to, no, I take that back. I have spoken with one film writer before. Um, but I've never spoken with someone who is as complex in their thinking and in their approach to a comedy film as you are. Um, oh, I got, I got to tell you, well, I, I have to tell you, uh, vice force action squad had me laughing like no other comedy ever has as a former police officer watching the way those two detectives were handling things, the dialogue between them, the utter cluelessness at times that they had in situations where they really needed to have their shit together. It, it's just absolutely hilarious. So hats off to oh. you for the writing and oh, the direction you. and the writing and the direction on that film. Hats off to you. Uh, well, thank you, John. I, I appreciate it. It was uh, the, um, uh, yeah, the impetus was kind of the, tr just, you know, you're, tropes of detective shows and uh it was just an approach i don't even remember what the inspiration was other than because i was going to ask you what was the where do you come up with this concept where did you come up with that well, idea I, you know i don't fully remember <laughs> what started it oh you know i just did i just did i had a roommate oh my roommate is uh, at the time was uh mark who's uh in the first two episodes as detective um marcus dahlhauser and he and i would just had this relationship where we would he uh he knows how to push buttons uh -huh. and i am a i'm very susceptible to having my buttons pushed and we would bicker like an old married couple and a mutual friend of ours was like you this should be a web series just you two um and then from there it kind of became haha us as you know, the idea I had was like, uh, that's funny. What if you had these two as cops? And we actually went one Halloween as the kind of like, not these characters, but just a version of like, okay. you know, cop, yeah. 70s cop guys. Yeah. And that's what I was like, you know, I think I'd already had the name too at that point, but nothing was written. And I was just thinking like, that's a funny this is a funny thing and I'm going to um, push through with it and just started writing. So I guess the approach was kind of like, what if Starsky and Hutch were Beavis and Butthead? And, and that <laughs> what was if Crockett and Tubbs were a couple of idiots and very uncool, yeah, yeah. very uncool. It, yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, dumb and dumber as, as homicide detectives. So, cause I'm such a fan of like this stupid, dumb comedy like that. Yeah. Like, even if it's smart or it, it feels dumb, like Airplane. Airplane's one of my favorite movies yes. of all time. And the jokes are so 
obvious and dumb, but it's so funny. So funny. And, and airplane was a big influence in the sense that like, there's always something going on every moment of that movie, even if it's not, in, in the background there's stuff there's like it's just wall-to-wall comedy well the, not that i achieved airplane but that was <laughs> that was the well but let me give this to you the the, the writing i think was brilliant it was oh, thank you the things that they said and did was so stupid i'm thinking it has to be a brilliant mind behind this <laughs> writing and i was talking to bob uh, earlier today like i told you and mm-hmm. one thing that i told him was that when when i watch a comedy I can always tell that the actors know that they're acting in a comedy, but there's something about the acting in your program, your series, where I felt like the actors didn't have a clue that they were dumb. <laughs> and that just yeah. made it, and that just made it more funny. Not that the actors that, were dumb, I mean, but that the characters were dumb. And, and that made it even yeah, more yeah. fun. It seemed like authentic silliness, authentic uh, uh, lack of competence in what they were doing. I th- to me, that's always very funny when you have characters who aren't, who are think they're the smartest person in the room, but everybody else knows they're not. And they when the more you they hoist themselves, the 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 harder the fall. Yeah. So, um, and it's like like I mentioned, Dumb and Dumber is an example, and that movie is so funny and it's so great. But like they have these moments of like inadvertent competency and that was something i had wanted to play into with this too like in dumb and dumber is a great scene where they uh they're being harassed by uh what's his name seabass who's a hockey player i guess but not in the movie but in real life um and then they get him to pay for their food uh, which is if I don't want to spoil the movie for anybody, it's very funny, but I just like that. Like they get a win despite yeah. their complete incompetence. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's a lot of, of that in life. A lot of times you just <laughs> see people like, wait, how do they, how did they get to this point when they're yeah. obviously not capable? They're obviously of not so. capable and yet somehow they succeed. <laughs> yeah. And that was, that was always the, that was the North star of like, winning despite yeah. you know great odds against them but not in a underdog way <laughs> let, let me back up a little bit eric let me ask sure. you where, where are you from where are you born and raised uh florida central florida grew okay. up born in, born in daytona beach grew up in orlando um was there until i moved here so so what is it that brought you to california is it that classic that almost cliche uh, story of you just wanted to make it in Hollywood. Is that what brought you yes. there? That, yes, that was it. Very much so. That was it. And, was, and uh, I say, and I say, I got... and, I, and I and I call that like a cliche story, but to me, it's a very inspiring story because who 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 actually does that? It takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of focus. It takes a lot of fearlessness to pack up and there's, move there. Can you tell me a little bit about your story about your about your journey to California? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know that it's really like a, a has a lot of twists and turns, but uh, I guess in a way it did. I've, I mean, I've always been interested in the arts, and uh, like when I was in seventh grade, I wrote a really terrible. I found it a couple of years ago, really terrible comedy play because I had been watching a ton of SNL for the first time uh, in my life yeah. at the, at this age. Yes, and it was, and it was, I was like twelve, you know, and. Um, and just was enamored by this style. So I wrote this like 
sketch play slash because it was supposed to be performed it okay. would really would have just been a bad sketch comedy like very bad there's no there's no chance comedy. of salvaging it and using it today you know it's funny i've thought about it and just shooting it but verbatim as it's written as it was written by me at 12 just as a, a, a an exercise mm-hmm. um but then I'm like, that's a lot of resources to go into something that's going to be really yeah. atrocious. And, yeah. and, and it's a, it's a one note joke. You know, the joke is that a 12 year old wrote this and the adult version of that person is filming it. So it's just, I don't, and with filmmaking, you always have to, especially comedy is like filmmaking. You always have to weigh, is the joke worth the effort? that's yeah. going to go into it, yeah. you know? And it's yeah. like, if something's so one note like that, it's like, Oh, just tell people about it and you'll save a lot of money <laughs> and time and effort. Um, so who, who were the, who were the, uh, the people on Saturday night live at the time you were inspired by them? What years are oh, you talking about? Man, you're going to you, age me. Yeah, there you uh, go. See, I'm, I'm sneaky. I'm sneaky. <laughs> there we go. Um, this was the, I mean, the early 90s, early to mid-90s cast. Okay. Janet Harvey, Mike Myers, Chris Farley, Adam Sandler. Sandler, yeah. Um, I think still, like, Kevin Nealon was still around and John Lovitz. Okay, yeah. um, Those Those were some good years. That was kind of like the prime, the the Wayne's World era. Yeah, those are some good years for SNL. SNL. Those are some good years for SNL. The best years for SNL. I think so. I think. Yep, Uh, I agree. I mean, mean, you're always biased, but yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, everybody's favorite music is what they heard yeah, when they were 15, true. you know? That's true. And it never got any better. Never got any um, better, yep. Gosh, we're old. Uh. <laughs> I know. No, even though that's not true, I mean, like, I, but I do think SNL has kind of had, like, a, I don't know, has become not quite as smart as it used to be. I can't relate to it anymore because, and you nailed it right there, that intelligence in the humor that they display seems to be gone and it's, it's become a little more broad. Well, it's to me, it seems like they're trying too hard. It's like they're trying to, I don't know, am I being mean if I say they, they're trying to cover up for a lack of talent? And I don't want to say they're not talented, but the level of talent is different now than it was. And I don't think this is my age and my way of thinking has changed so drastically. I just mm. don't think there's the same level of talent. I just don't see it. I think what it is is... Like SNL used to be the cutting edge of comedy, and it was like, especially in its early days, everybody was trying to be them. And now it's become such an institution that it's. Do we expect too much? It's comfort food. Okay. So, in the sense that, like, I mean, maybe this is a bad example, but maybe it's the best example McDonald's. Like, when McDonald's first came out, first started, first expanded, everyone's like, McDonald's is awesome and now you're like well i just kind of feel like mcdonald's it's not the best i mean or any any chain restaurant you know is is like that you know at one point it was the newest hippest thing and then they have you have success doing that and the same goes for snl doing this thing and then the rest of the world whether the culinary world the comedy world moves past you and then you are now an institution and you can always go and you know you're going to get a good meal but you're not going to, it's not going to like, it's not something you're going to run home and tell people about. Right. Now, I, I wonder if it has to do with the recruiting process uh, to get the, you know, to get the talent on there. Because now it seems like everyone and their mother is putting out their own 
comedy special on Comedy Central or on or on Netflix. And maybe at one time SNL was kind of like a stepping stone to getting that special. It's fun. I I think SNL. I think the actual like talent on SNL is great. I just think that okay. they are. They have. I think they're they're. I don't, I don't want to say their hands are being tied, but there's an expectation of like, you're the, 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 you're still the most visible high end thing on television. Like this right. is still what people aspire to, yeah. to do. And, but because of that, you know, like we're the cheesecake factory, we have a standard and you could do something more adventurous and might be more interesting, but that's not what people come here for. I see. Um, but you, if you watch, like, Kyle Mooney is a perfect example. Kyle Mooney is so funny and so interesting. And, and I just saw his movie, Brigsby Bear, which um, I don't know if you've seen it. But I haven't seen it. Highly that, recommended. No. Okay. Highly recommended. Uh, has a lot of his SNL co-stars in it. Um, th- like, well, you can tell when he does his sketches on SNL, because, like, especially the pre-recorded ones, because they're kind of weird. And that's the stuff I always end up liking the most. Um, like if they never do another game show, I'll be more than happy, even though those sketches turn out funny, you know, sometimes, but they do, they do sometimes, but yeah, you know, I, I, I I don't know. I don't, I don't want to say they're not talented. I mean, they're the ones that are on the show and I'm not, so they must have more more talent than me, but, but it's something, I don't know. Something has changed. Something has changed. I I think it's, I think it's just it like. I think, it, I, I mean, I hate to be like, I'm right, but I think I'm right in the, in the <laughs> sense that, like, it's it's become such an institution that it hasn't been able to grow and uh, with it. So it's, you know, like, Weekend Update is always going to have the same Weekend Update jokes. But now comedy is so prevalent, like you touched on earlier, you know, you have you have five, six, seven different late night hosts who are also doing the same thing. That's right. And it's interesting because you, you know, you say there's so many comedy specials and stuff Uh, for years. I've been saying comedy is the new rock music in the sense that like from the inception of rock and roll, or at least since rock and roll groups like the Beatles up until I don't know, 2000, 2010 ish. That's what young people did is you picked up a guitar and you learned how to play guitar and you joined a band or something like that. And you sort of aspired to become a musician. And somewhere along the line, that kind of faded away probably as rock music declined in popularity and people picked up comedy as the new sort of rock. So like a comedy troupe is the new, rock band online sketch comedy is your new is the new equivalent of that yeah so i think that there's just a lot more people doing it and you're because of that they're naturally seeing different more cutting edge things and so snl while it's still like the the gold standard it's not quite it's not the only big it's not the only big thing out there anymore whereas and it's yeah. yeah but it's i would say it's it is the biggest thing but it's because it's so big it's not the most important thing right right no, I don't it's know. Just, I, I, I guess I'm a little old fashioned. I just miss the old days, you know. Like you say, the you know, the, the early mid '90s, maybe even up until around '98, '99. Um, you know, I, I want to see Norm Macdonald back on Weekend Update. You know, that's yeah, that's the standard right there I, for me. I think I think also part of it is like 
it like you said those career those the people that they got went on to big careers especially in the throughout the 90s like will ferrell is one of the biggest yeah. stars in the world and yeah. um you know and, and mike myers was at one point and um and whereas this cast it kind of feels like the pe- there's more outlets for people to to express themselves right. for comedians to express themselves there is, yeah. because there's so much more content online and, and on, you know, there's like 500 scripted shows being made. Yeah. So it's a little easier, not e- I shouldn't say easier. There's more opportunities for a comedian to like ex- flex their, their muscle, express them, their voice. Yeah. That's not <laughs> SNL. Yeah. So. Yeah. That, co- that, that ties directly in with what I was saying about how I, there was a time where the easiest, well, I'm sorry, not the easiest, but the, 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 the best, most effective way to make it as a comedian was through SNL. Whereas now yeah, that's not the case. I think it's just not the, o- the only it's path. Not, exactly. Anymore. It's not the only path anymore. Whereas yeah. at, there was a time where it almost was the only path. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least the only path that'll get you in front of a lot of eyes. Yeah. But you look back and then, I mean, the state was, you know, more the state was funnier more interesting more cutting edge than snl was at the time even though snl was great but like there's a lot of the states now yeah in, in various know, forms there is so anyway now, there's back, there's back back to all right well time. that's all okay. the show we have for you <laughs> no, hey we got nothing but time here uh no go, but going back okay you're 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 in florida mm-hmm. and when did this desire to get to California first arise in you? Um, I would say right after somewhere in my first couple of years in college, because okay. I had left high school with every intention of being a psychiatrist. Oh. I was going to go all eight years and, you know, do the whole thing and become a doctor and, um, uh, you know, get my doctorate, I should say, in psychiatry. And after a year of college, I because I was going to this community college in, near my house, and I hated it. And uh, I didn't go straight to university. I was I don't want to. I don't want to do this. I don't want to spend eight years in school. Yeah. Uh, so I, I decided to change my major. Ironically, <laughs> irony the great ruler of my life. Uh, <laughs> you too. <laughs> once I yeah. Once I finished college for my four-year degree because i changed majors so much and because of the program i went through i had been in school for eight years so <laughs> i spent the same amount of time and got half the degree um okay. whatever yeah. it is what it is uh yeah but i kept changing majors and that was why i went from from I, I was always interested in the arts i mean like i said i i wrote that play in seventh grade and in high school, I was in a band, in early days of college, in a band. Okay. And um, so it was always something in, you know, always driven to the arts yeah. and driven to. Uh, um, so then in after that, I, I knew I, I wanted to do something creative. So I kind of went to into marketing as a, as a career choice and as a path of study. And then I quickly realized that what I thought was marketing was actually advertising. Ah. Uh, so I, so I was like, well, that was dumb. Um, so then it became advertising as a, as a, as a course path. It's a lot of changes, man. It's a lot of changes. And in there I had taken a class just on a whim, uh, a screenwriting class. Cause I was like, I don't know anything about how this works. This will be interesting. Yeah. So I took that class and 
took to it immediately. I was like, I totally understand everything that's going on here. And the project that we had to do for the the final project, it got the highest grade in the class. My teacher's huh. like, this is very good. Yes. It's like, oh, maybe I'm onto something here, but maybe not. So you no, didn't know, even out. even then, you still didn't really know. Even though I'm like, nah, I don't, you know, yeah. uh, we'll see. So, um, but then I had transferred to university and was in this, this uh, advertising thing. And I was like, I don't really enjoy this. This is like, I like the creative aspect of it, but it just feels, I don't know. It didn't feel right. I didn't look okay. at people. Yeah. And then around that time, I was like, I think I actually just want to go to film school. This is what I, I think I'm putting off. So the, How the school old where I went, oh, it was like midway through college. So okay, so you had a couple. Yeah, okay, so you had a couple yeah. years in college at that point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I most of my my under my pre, uh, I mean, I'd taken like a year off at one point too. Okay. It wasn't like I did classes straight for eight years and then. Yeah. finally had enough for a degree um <laughs> it was just a lot of like start and stop i see uh yeah. trying to figure out you know so you were really go. you were really undecided did you, could it could it yeah. have been a case of you um loving the arts maybe even loving film or writing at that point but you didn't recognize that love for that art as a career path I, a, a potential I think career that's, path that's a I would say that's exactly what it is. And I think that I have um, come from a risk averse uh, parents and ah, okay. who wouldn't, it's funny cause they were always like, you know, I gave up on my dreams. Don't give up on your dreams. And then I want to do this. And like, Oh, what are you going to do if it doesn't work out? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, prove them wrong. That's what I was going to yeah, do. Yeah. So, um, so finally, after that advertising stint, I was like, I realized, no, it's film. This is what I remember taking that class. I enjoyed that. So I started taking all the classes I could that weren't that were available to me because the, the school I was at is University of Central Florida in Orlando, and I had known they had a good program um, because that's where the Blair Witch guys had gone. Okay. And cool. So and they were. This is probably like five years ahead of me, maybe four or five years of, yeah. of ahead of there. So, so they, the school had a reputation at that point for being, hey, they, they produced this, these, these guys. So, um, but they had a limited access program where they only took like thirty people a year mm-hmm. into their film program. So it's like, okay, I got to apply. So I did, got in the first try, and they're in school. But for there, it was a three-year program. So. As, yeah, that's why it took so long. It was like, and I was enjoying it. I those are some of the best times of my life. Those few years was it? Yeah. I met because you I were with like-minded the, people and yeah, and just good people. It was like, I mean, still like our our uh, Taylor, who's one of the actors in in uh, in Vice Force. We went. He was in film school with me. Our our okay. TP Scott was in film school too. A lot of people who worked on the show in various capacities. Yeah, I, did, yeah, I didn't know you and, and Taylor there. went back like that. I didn't know that. Oh, we've been friends for 20 years now. Okay. Um, so, um, so yeah, so that's, uh, and Mark, who was in the first 
yeah. uh, a couple episodes. Yeah. Also in school with us. So that was how it started. It was like just a, a thing to do with friends and like yeah. kind of expanded from there. But yeah, those those years were just fantastic. So it was just a natural um, uh, next step after finishing school. So to, how solid was your plan then when you went from uh, Florida and you took the took the uh, and you moved to California? How solid was your plan? I mean, did you have uh, did you have any kind of a gig set up? Did you have any place oh, to no. stay? Uh, I did have a place to live because one of the guys I went to school with had already moved here. There was like a handful of people from we you know we'd gone to school with that moved here uh, prior to that a year to six months prior than that to that and one of the guys. Um, he and his his roommate at the time were sharing a one bedroom apartment, uh, and the, his roommate was moving out. So okay. it was like perfect timing. This is I can I can go and stay with him, and I have a place to live. So that was a big uh, that didn't require a security deposit. That didn't require a ton of rent. You know, it was pretty yeah, cheap. Cause, yeah, because I was going to ask you about that. You know, without dig into deep into your personal finances. Uh, no, you know, fine. there is a different cost of living between Florida to California. And then when you're going out there and you don't have a paid gig set up, how, how, um, I mean, to me, to me, it takes a pretty adventurous guy <laughs> to do something like it, that. It does. And I had a, a nice benefit of, uh, personal savings, um, okay. that, uh, cause I, I don't, I was very lucky not having any student loan debt because I, I, of three things. One is I worked throughout all of college, worked full time, most of it, part time through all, at least through all of it. What, kind of, work? Through what all. kind of, what kind of work? Uh, well, it's funny. Um, I worked, let's see, when I first went to school, I was working in a grocery store and you know, it's like common, yeah. you know, 18 year old jobs. Yeah. And then, uh, after that is where I, started a new gig and still fits in with this entertainment and something that's been a lifelong like hobby, but also dream. So I started not this specific dream, but I, I started working for universal studios um, uh-huh. there in the theme park, not, not okay. the actual studio. Okay. And I have such a great love for theme parks. It's, it's really, I would say my dream career is actually to be like an imagineer and a creative uh, department in a theme park. I find that that to be the ultimate expression of oh. like immersive entertainment. I was and just going to say, I was, actually, that's I was like, actually at Disneyland yesterday. So oh, were you? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I went there uh, with my family back in 2015, I think it was 20, 2016. Um, and if I ever see that mouse, I think I'm going to choke him to death. He took so much money. <laughs> So much of my money, yeah. and uh, I didn't have as much I've fun been, as I thought I was. <laughs> I've been really blessed in that growing up in Orlando, it's you don't really, you don't you don't have to pay to go because you know somebody who okay. will, who you works the there. And you can, got the hookup, yeah. And can, but you know, but in in Orlando, you, there's I mean they employ like sixty thousand people yeah. in Orlando, so like you know somebody who at least knows sure. somebody. So you can go. Maybe you're not going all the time, but you can go. But then when I started working there, it's free admission for you. So I started going to Universal Studios a lot. But then also you would meet Disney employees, yeah. and you couldn't go to Disney for free. They couldn't go to universal for free, but you just trade. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So I started going a lot. And then right around the same time, my mom started working for Disney and continues to to this day. So I've just been going for free for oh, cool. a very long time. That's a very cool. long time. I'm, I'm very blessed. And I know it's like for people who don't have that, it's like the, the value of theme parks is completely ruined for me because a hundred dollars, this isn't worth a hundred dollars. It's worth zero. That's what I pay. No, I, um, I joke, I it, joke about how much money we spent when we were there, but it, it was a good time for the kids. And that was what was most yeah. important to me. So yeah. it is very expensive it it is. Is, and it's, it's increasingly more expensive and I have a lot of theories as to why, but we don't have to get into that. Uh, if, if you don't want to, but and it has to, it's a grand economic theory. Um, hey, let's talk whole, about let's talk about that. Let's take a sure. sidestep here. We're getting why, we're getting far from the show, but that's okay. No, we'll come back. Um, we will come back to it. But why why do you think it's so expensive there? Here's what here's make, what make I, me feel better for for spending all that money I spent. Oh, there. I'm not, I'm not going to make you. <laughs> You're feel not going to make this me. Is oh, a, the, this is a depressing theory. <laughs> um, basically, it's this: since the late '70s, early '80s, since the Reagan administration. Uh, wage growth has become very stagnant in this country. Yes, it has. And, and the income disparity is growing and growing and growing. The middle class is shrinking. So now you have, uh, you know, Gen Xers, millennials, Xennials as I am, younger millennials who are, have now one grown up with this as part of their lives. And an entire culture has been, has grown up around, Disney and, and stuff. So it's, it's a normalized part of your life. It's not like a vacation destination, but especially for people who live within proximity of these, which yeah. is, sorry, my, my light just turned off. Um, uh, it's also like, you know, it's a normal part of your life, but they also, because of that income, the stagnation don't have, money the 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 income needed to buy a home yes. so there's a lot of people who can't buy homes so when you're a renter and you you don't have the money to buy a home but you still have disposable income that yeah. is not enough to buy a house but is more than what you need what do you spend it on entertainment there you go so yeah. yep. so now movie tickets have skyrocketed yeah. theme park admission has skyrocketed why because there's more of a demand for it because you know People thirty to forty have exposed dis, disposable income that they have no, they can't put towards. Yeah, it's a not home. gonna it's not gonna go towards a home. People are stressed, so what do they they need that entertainment outlet? And there's, exactly. Yeah, so and there, it, there's the theme park and, and yeah. The escapism of movies yes. and just entertainment yeah. in general is so appealing. So now the parks have a limited supply and high demand so how do you control the supply when the demand is so high you have to start making your supply more expensive make it more to, exclusive otherwise yeah make it more exclusive i mean partly yeah they're making a ton of money i'm not saying disney or altruists but you also have to limit the number of people within the park to make it for the people who are there to have some sort of perceived value yeah. because at a hundred thousand people, it's a much different experience than if there's 50,000 people in that park. Yeah. You know, that's a good point. And that's probably the main reason why I didn't enjoy being in, uh, there at Disney as much as I thought I would, because it was so mm. doggone crowded. 
and it, it got to be it got to be a stress factor very quickly that's it's kind of you know learning i had four years of of working in a theme park and i and eventually did work at epcot too so it's worked for both big theme park companies uh simultaneously actually um oh no i didn't i'm sorry they didn't overlap it doesn't matter um <laughs> but but one thing you learn is like very quickly when to go because don't go around major holidays don't go in the summer basically between memorial memorial day and labor day forget it just stay home this was in late go to the beach this was in late september 2016 when we were there so it wasn't really the high season at all yeah but it was still weekend um weekends are also of what you know i I can't remember can't remember if it was a weekday or weekend i can't remember if i was to tell if I was a parent, I'd be like, "We're going on a Tuesday. You're gonna you're gonna take the day off of school. I'll pretend you're sick, and <laughs> we're going on a Tuesday in the middle of February or you know November pre Thanksgiving, where it's just slow yeah. and you can get the most enjoyment out of it. Um, because there were days when you know around Thanksgiving or, or Christmas, I worked at at, the, at Universal where it was brutal." how your day it was so busy and then oh, there'd yeah. be days like right after the first of the year you know mid-january it was just you just sit there all day there was no almost nobody well i have to say this the employees they they knew their job and they knew how to make you feel welcome and they knew how to uh you know put on that happy face and make it, it, it was it was a good experience yeah in that aspect of it but it just it cost way too much for what it was i think and it was way too crowded so yeah, I mean it's not you know everybody's has a different sort of like but, you know and now we've been, now we've been there we've we've been there we've done it the kids have that experience and um, like I said if do, I you're in being in Norway do you ever go to like Efteling or um, uh, I mean it's not in the same country obviously but it's closer uh, what's the other one that's been uh, there's another. There's two like really great non Disney parks in Western Europe, and I'm trying um, to remember what the other one was. One is Efteling, and that's in um, I gotta look it up. Um, Efteling, uh, I don't think I've heard of that. Efteling, it's in the Netherlands. Okay, yeah. Um, it it's it's near. Uh, it's supposed to be fantastic, and yeah, um, I don't. Um, I haven't gotten around to too, too much. There's been, I, I tell you, I've been here in Norway for 19 years now, and there's been so much to experience here. I'll give you a good example. We we live in the southeast, along the coast in the southeast, but okay. we also have I'm a home. Looking at the map. Yeah, if you if you look at Drummond, D R A M M. Oh yeah, I see it. Okay, that's yeah, the, that's the, that's right. the city we live in. But then, if you go a two, three-day car drive north, all mm-hmm. the way up to a region called Finnmark, an island okay. called Sailand, that's S-E-I-L-A-N-D. Take a look at Sailand. Let's, let's see S, where this is. S as in Sam, uh, E-I-L-A-N for November, D. Is it is it north or south of north. Bodo? North. No, north of, I'm trying to... North. Uh, but Bodo, is yep. it pronounced Bodo? Uh, no, uh, Buda, Buda. Oh, I was, I was <laughs> close. Uh, is it near Hammerfest? Hammerfest is if you, if you if you go. Um, that sounds, uh, if you, yeah, that it, sounds like an awesome festival. 
I'll tell you about Hummerfest. I know it's a town, but... But, but if, you, if you go kind of south uh, and along the coast, uh, towards the southwest, you'll see another island called Ceylon. It's almost right next Let's to it. It's one see. island over from Hummerfest. S-E-I-L-A-N-D. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, there I see you go. it. So way up there, and that's like, a, if you take it easy, it's like a three, almost a four-day car drive. We, oh also, we also have a home up there. So now you kind of get that image of there being That's, more than enough to experience here in Norway. Oh, for, for sure. You know what I mean? For sure. We have two yeah. totally different, you know, there's two totally different dialects of Norwegian that they speak. Um, uh, you know, you have the Laplanders, the Sami people, you know, up there is where you're going to see reindeer and stuff like that. So it's a totally different oh, wow. experience than living down here in the city. So yeah, that that's uh, uh that's very cool. Yeah, it's I very cool. Have been, <laughs> I've spent a little bit of time in Norway, uh, in Epcot. Okay, yeah. So I so I kind of I know what you're about. There I know you go. Yeah, like, you've seen it all. You've been um, to Epcot. You've seen I, it all. <laughs> I always wonder, like, how I I know that in Epcot these are like extreme distillations of the experience of living in this country, but I always wonder how accurate of a distillation are they you know because i've, like, I've, I've they, never been to epcot so i couldn't tell you but if you told me you saw this that or the other at epcot then i can tell you if it's really that way here i don't, I don't yeah, remember it's been a yeah. while but but i mean they have you know that i feel like they have what seems like authentic food for each country and i know they, they probably do those, those pavilions with because yeah. they're basically pavilions in a fair that was yeah. kind of the, the yeah. idea behind it but they staff it with people from norway or yeah. china or denmark or not denmark they don't have a denmark pavilion morocco or, or yeah. wherever so it's like these are from at least what, they're people from from that country who are representing it and not yeah. you know from what i understand it's fairly accurate I've, I've spoken to some norwegians who have worked there before and from what i understand it's fairly accurate but uh, but it's you know I've been here 19 years and I'm still fascinated I still can't believe I'm here, it's uh it's it's just been a constant adventure it's so cool to be able to speak the language. Um, what uh what drew you to there? Well, you see this ring here. Yes. That's uh, my, you found my, that you found that ring in Norway. I found the ring in Norway. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's just uh, on the ground. It's just on the ground, man. Uh, no, I, like um, I say to people, I met my wife on a Friday night. I woke up with a headache on Sunday, and I was in Norway already. Um, oh wow! <laughs> we uh, we got introduced by a common friend, another Norwegian lady who had moved to Chicago, where I was living. Uh, and she was this, this lady moved from Norway to Chicago and she was a girlfriend to one of my best friends, a training partner. I had a power, another power lifter. And this, this woman started talking right away about my wife and how I should meet her. And push came to shove. We finally ended up meeting when, when my, my, my wife came to visit her and here we are, <laughs> we got married. Oh, we got married about a year after we met. We lived in the States for about 18 months. And then we came here in 2002. What was your decision to leave the U.S. born out of more, do you think, your desire or hers? Uh, it was born out of necessity. Uh, I can tell you real quick. Hmm. Now, all my viewers and listeners are familiar with this story. Um, but like I said, I was a cop <clears throat> in the south hmm. suburbs of Chicago. And I was working a case um, as, a, uh, as a detective. 
and this pretty rough, uh, somewhat international gang. They all kinds of stuff with drugs, uh, weapons, uh, prostitution, um, uh, counterfeit money, all kinds of stuff that these guys were involved in. And they found out where we lived. And they paid us a little visit one night. It was like 1130 at night. And we get a phone call. Oh, my gosh. Yep. Got a phone call 1130 at night. We had just gone to bed. Got a phone call from a neighbor saying that she saw three guys climbing the fence in our backyard and headed up to our house. So fast forward to the day after, they uh, about 20 of them showed up at my wife's job. Threatening oh her. And then the day after that, the morning after that, I drove her up to Minnesota to stay with some friends. She ended up coming back to Norway, and I followed her about three months after that. I just quit my job, and here we are. So it was kind of wow. born out of necessity. It was not in the cards. It was not planned in no way whatsoever. So it was kind of rough to come here. Kind of rough. Um, but I, but you I, like it there now. Well, yeah, I like it now. And I, But I got my head around being here rather quickly. Um, I, I got a job. Have you... I got a job, as a matter of fact, you, before I could even speak the language. So, oh wow, yeah. Have you sent that international gang a thank you note? <laughs> I have seen that several of them got locked up then, and mm -hmm. several of them have gotten locked up since then. Now, my mother worked in the federal court system, and at one point, the Secret Service got involved because of the the money the the money crimes, you know the. Oh, counterfeit counterfeit money. Yeah. So it became federal and my mother was familiar with the case and she kind of kept me filled in for some years there. And it was, it, it felt good to see them, you know, one and two at a time getting locked up for pretty long stretches. Yeah. Oh, that's, uh, um, I bet you that was satisfying. It was satisfying, but you know, I try not to be a shoulda, woulda, coulda type of guy, but, uh, yeah, but yeah, shoulda, woulda, coulda, you know, like it, it, it was not yeah. planned to come here, but I, you know, I made the most of it and things are well doing fine here. The kids are well, they're healthy. Sounds like it. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. I can, uh, what, well, you said you got a job without speaking the language. Yeah. Was it in your field or did you? No. Um, because at that time I, you know, of course, I wanted to get into police. Work, I guess you. I guess. I guess you'd have to speak the language in well, order to be a cop. Well, yeah, and you also you also have to be have to be a citizen of Norway to be a cop. Oh, so, that makes that makes sense. But what too. I did was I got recruited to do some project work at a high school, where I started a project that I ran to keep kids out of the danger zone. Kids that were like right on mm -hmm. the right on that fine line between. Uh, criminal action and just basic delinquency. <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, so, I, I, so I got a it's job doing that. It's funny, as an American, you don't think, I don't think of Norway as being a place that has criminals, but obviously it does, every, everywhere does. But it just seems like sort of an idyllic paradise. And, just, well, and you think of crime as like uniquely American, or at least yeah. in other like countries like Colombia or, or you know, where they have sort of like, a, a, re a reputation in fiction for for having for being dangerous but well, like no it is somewhat I would never it is somewhat idyllic here it is somewhat storybook peaceful here you know there is crime but it's yeah not, but i don't there's nowhere in norway where i would feel uncomfortable walking at night that just doesn't exist i'm, I'm sure that doesn't exist I, I, it's just it's a sort of like a, a short-sighted to think of it as a crime-free utopia yeah, whereas like yeah. every place has its um it's fine just that american like 
lens that you see everything through is well, yeah, it, it, it is it, different. Like, does not present an accurate representation of the rest of the world. Well, it's it, it's uh, it's quite amazing to me, and I'm still not used to to the the. And I don't want to say anything bad about my fellow Americans, but sometimes we're just dumb. Sometimes oh, we're, we're dumb. willfully dumb. We don't want to learn about anyone else that's outside of the borders of the United States. And let me tell you, being here all these years has really given me perspective. It really oh, has. Sure. Um, I thought I we had perspective have, uh, before, but I, now I know, now I've gotten perspective and I see what's happening back home. And I tell you, it breaks my mm -hmm. heart. It's oh, heartbreaking yeah, it's, to, it's, to be way over here and great. see what's been happening. It's, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's, uh, I, I think that we have, I mean, obviously we have our curric our school curriculum is so America first and almost America only. Like there are other places that exist, but none of, we're far superior to all of them. But I also just our like physical geography has made us so isolated from the rest yeah. of like the the world because it's so expensive to travel to Europe or travel and, and to the to and I, no, I was know, gonna say and that, yeah, and that fact uh, the fact of, of, of the expense of traveling outside of the United States is what makes me say, Yeah, I get it. You know, America's a big country. Yeah. You could compare California and Florida to, to to Norway and Romania, for example. You know, as far yeah, as distance. In terms of in terms of distance, but in terms of culture, they're virtually identical. Right, virtually identical. In the I mean, in this in a vast spectrum. Sure, sure. You know, there's obviously there's differences between them, but like Californians and Floridians are much closer than Norwegians and Romanians are culturally. <laughs> obviously being from the same yeah, exactly. from the same country. But but distance distance wise, um, you know, it's it's comparable. And, yeah, and, and I, I and I, but, is, but I see, I see that, and, and I can, I can handle America first, but there's too much of that America only, like you said, to where, uh, yeah, I don't know, it's, it's just a sad thing to see, and I, I guess I'm cursed with perspective, and that makes me feel, or blessed with it, or blessed with it. I mean, yeah. I would, I would say that you're, uh, I, you know, being able to to step outside and have that lens on on. Um, just that different perspective is invaluable yeah. because we are very much made to feel and think that this is the norm in yeah. what we experience in this country and everybody else has a different yet inferior experience. Well, exactly. And, yeah. And, and it's really born out of like this myth of uh, one, a war or a myth of war and of of moral superiority equal, or I should say, military superiority equaling uh, moral superiority, right, right? And just this myth of like we're the heroes that yeah that save the world from the yeah. Nazis, and like and we are you, that we and, are and that I mean, we are that. But but what have we done with that? Have we borne that 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 status, or have we borne that? accomplishment honorably since then and my answer is no no we haven't we're a bunch of assholes i think, I think for <laughs> yeah yeah exactly i think for a time the period of the like 15 year period from the end of world war ii to the time we landed on the moon yeah. was like this boom time of uh, i mean that was the best that america yes. had to offer even though within our country it was not to everybody i mean right in terms of like financial uh, social finances, 
like our middle class was huge. Yeah. There was a lot of room for growth for people. But the way this country treated people of color, treated people of different sexualities during that time, doesn't equal the yeah. the sort of yeah. like social progress. Yeah, I mean, there was a heck of a duality there. For all of the fiscal yes. prosperity, there were some social issues that really, really were. Yeah, uh, there was a, uh, a lot of opportunity for white people. Yeah, and. Yeah. And, and I, it's weird because sometimes I, I just think like, oh, the Civil Rights Act, huge, hugely important in the history of, of um, black Americans only 60 years ago. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know it yeah. feels like or like or, you know, the Supreme Court legalizing gay marriage. Oh, this feels normal now. It was only a decade ago. Like, right. Exactly. And, and we haven't we. We've made progress, but it it has not. It, it it's been very recent. It's been very recent, and it hasn't mm. seeped into the fabric of America yet. There's some people walking around today who feel that because the the civil rights laws were passed, you know, fifty five, sixty years ago. Uh, that now everything has been fine and dandy since then, and it hasn't. People need to get a connection to the realities of what's happening in America. Just because it says this, that, or the other on paper because mm-hmm. of laws that have been passed, that does not mean that the equality has seeped into the fabric of our of our society. Because it hasn't. Not at all. It hasn't. Not at all. There's progress being made, but it's progress that should have been made 30 exactly. years ago. Amen. We're still Amen. we're still behind. Amen. And. And it's and the the good thing is a lot of it and, and this is going to sound self important but it's not um, a lot of it is changing rapidly within the microcosm of uh, entertainment in Hollywood. I hate I hate using Hollywood as like a, a uh, you know a, a catch all for entertainment. But but I'm glad you're bringing this it, up. I wanted to ask you about this, so please continue. Yeah. Well, having better representation in our entertainment leads to it being normalized throughout our culture. And I hate that entertainment drives our culture, but, and I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to sound self-important, but it's the reality of it. But I think you should also take credit for it. You say you don't want to sound self-important, but I do believe that those of you who are working uh, in in Hollywood uh, should take the credit. You guys have broken ground. You guys do show the way very often in your storytelling. You're showing people the way to true equality, true social I equality. Wish, I wish all of it I could say was out of a, a, a born out of like a responsibility, a sense of responsibility, but also um, true like equality and wanting to you know, make sure everybody's voice is heard and not financial, but right. Right. Yeah. There is that. that, It's still a business. But but the thing is, is, is it's, it's become popular to hate on Hollywood. Uh, I can give you a very recent case. Uh, just yesterday I was in a little back and forth with someone who, um, uh, it's been less than a week since Tom Hanks wrote an article in the New York times talking about, uh, the Tulsa massacre. And Tom Hanks was talking about how it's a shame that he didn't know that until very recently. He didn't learn anything about it in school. And he, so, was, spe- so he was just speaking on that. He wrote a very good piece on that. And this other guy was like, hey, you know what? Screw screw Tom Hanks. He's got a piece of shit son who does this, that, and the other. And I'm sick of Tom Hanks playing holier than now. And I don't underst- I just don't understand that. 
because I he, I see someone who is an ally in in my fight mm-hmm. for equality. Mm-hmm. Someone who's being a good ally who wrote this beautiful piece in a major newspaper. I got I got nothing but love for the guy and this thing about his son. Uh, his son using the N-word repeatedly and all that stuff. First of all, I didn't know anything about that, so it's, it's probably, you know, who knows if there's any truth in that. But if there is truth in that, what does it have to do with Tom Hanks being a great ally in the fight for equality? But that's that thing that's popular with this hating on yeah. Hollywood now. It's become so popular, especially in the last I, four I, years. I think not only exclusive to Hollywood, it's just the internet creates, social media creates a culture of I shouldn't say creates a culture makes it easy to express these feelings of anger and, and dislike and, yeah. and and uh disgust without having to actually answer to your feelings there's uh, it's funny and I hate to bring this guy up but because he's become such a piece of crap but <laughs> Louis CK who ah. is a, one of the biggest disappointments to me because he was a force for good even he though was. he has this like in in, in 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 instances like that, but he still has this like problem that he didn't. I don't think he addressed in the right way, and he kind of doubled down on his horribleness. But, anyways, that being said, is that how you see it, really? Um, yeah. Okay. I mean, the guy, the guy, like had an opportunity. It's funny because, like, I don't, I don't want to get too much to do it, but the story that led to his sort of like cancellation mm. um, was known. Yes. I'd heard it from more than one source. Yes, pro- years prior yes. to this, people um, knew. People so when knew. people people knew, so when Me Too, when that when that reckoning came about, all of these past instances could now be talked about in a more public sense. And him, so he kind of he issued an apology statement, and he sort of slinked into the background. So you had one <laughs> of two options there: you could own up to it and say, I'm going to make this right by, I don't want to say embracing, but owning your mistake and trying to educate people and say, this was wrong and you shouldn't do this. But didn't, and it's he, do funny that? Like, didn't he do that? Wasn't that, a, no, he wasn't, out. wasn't that first, a part of his apology? It was in his statement, but the first, the first show he does, he goes out and starts making rape jokes and it's, and it's, and, and like, on this like anti-cancellation crusade it's like dude all you had to do was own it and say i made a mistake i don't want to make sure other people don't do these don't make the same mistake because he has so many bits about you know like there was a, a line on his show where his uh he had these kids and he's and and his kids were like and these two daughters and the one was like oh such and such has more in her bowl and he's yeah and I've he's seen, just, yeah. the only time you should yeah the only time you should worry about what's in somebody else's bowls if your neighbor has enough basically so it's like these ideas which are are altruistic and and positive for the world are sort of it could have just leaned into that but instead yeah. got mad and said i i don't deserve this treatment and has now lost everything because of it. And I forgot. Yeah, but did he? Was. Yeah, but did he? Did he say that, or did his supporters say that? Because I didn't see anything where he 
said he didn't deserve what he got. Also, you know, and I'm not I'm not there, and I don't know anyone who knows him. But my impression through the media was that he apologized. He said it was wrong. He realized he has a problem. He hopes he didn't hurt anyone. Uh, he also said that up through the years, because like you said, this had been going on for quite a while, he had approached a couple of these ladies and apologized mm -hmm. and made things right with them. And then he went away, and then his supporters started to say he doesn't deserve to be canceled, uh, give the guy a break, and so on and so on. But did he actually say that himself? I feel like he did, but I don't remember when or where, or how, and it's so. I'm not defending his action. Wrong. I'm not defending yeah, his yeah, action. Yeah. I mean, what he did, it was it was it was a piece of shit to, move. I'd it was have, a piece of shit move I'd what have. he did. But I guess my question is: is when people do things like what he did, can they be forgiven, and do they deserve a shot? And how long I should think, that take? I think you can, but you have to. In my mind, you have to own it. You have to apologize sincerely and you have to make more of an effort to rectify it than you, than what went into the actual, uh, the act or, or yeah. whatever. I guess I look at that. it like, how do, how do we know what he said and did behind the scenes to his, I don't want to call them victims, to the, to the victims, victims. Of, of what he did. What did he say to them? Because in part of his written statement, he did say that he had already approached some of them years ago. I don't, I, I mean, I don't know. And we probably never will, Yeah. yeah. but, but just to like, you know, when that, when that's, it, here's what I think. If he had done so, how did this, how was this still yeah. become known? I mean, that's a good in point. The sense of like, that's a good point. It, somebody still had a vendetta. Somebody was still, yeah. Somebody was still, or, or maybe a vendetta, or still, yeah, felt hurt. I vendetta yeah. Or hurt, or, or and, whatever you want to and, say, yeah. And 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 rightly victimized. Sure. So, sure. and I, if it was somebody who wasn't there, it's it's kind of hearsay just because they didn't experience it. But I don't think that's what happened because I don't think that something could reach the level that it did if it was secondhand information. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's good points. Yeah. So anyways, I forgot what led us. What were we talking about before this? I was talking about good old kind hearted, uh, Tom Hanks. And then you talked about piece of shit, Louis CK. <laughs> yeah. What led us to this? Um, uh, what, what I was getting at why, was the, why whole... did I, why did I bring him up? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. How did that come in? No, I don't know what, I, what I was getting at though, was this, this thing that's become popular for people on the right to just, it's the knee jerk reaction. It's the go-to reaction to hate <clears throat> on all things Hollywood but I see a lot, of course, there's a lot of strange things that well, happen in Hollywood, but I see a lot of positive, <laughs> I see a lot of positive for society. There's, I see some groundbreaking things happening in film. I think, I think also what happens is, I mean, and I hate to be so generalized and so like anti, but I see a lot on the right is what a lot of misinformation guides, uh, uh um, sort of belief systems and, there is a culture of like grievance yep. um, that was, and, and there are uh, institutions that are sort of right wing focused yes. um, that uh, are capitalizing on driving this culture of grievance and anger. And um, so 
when you have something like Kevin, this comes out that Kevin Spacey and Brian Singer yeah. are part of a, a, you know, pedophilic sex ring, uh, that this becomes, uh, representative of the industry yeah. entire of it, in its entirety. And that's when you get Hollywood is sort of full of pedophiles. Hollywood is not, there's, you know, tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of people who work in the entertainment industry yeah. who are just normal people yeah, and who have, and you know, everybody has, you know, positive, good sure. and, and bad yeah. within them. But like most people are not, they're not pedophiles <laughs> passing right. around children, you know? Right. And it's like, but that becomes these indefensible acts. Then, I mean, it's, it's, it's always like this throughout history. It's like right after nine 11, you yeah. know, there were 12 hijackers who committed this atrocity and a support network that got them there. But there are millions of Muslims across the world who were just normal people exactly. and who, and who are, are religious to whatever extent that they, you know, they're not yeah. zealots right. exactly. who are going to. So, and they end up, taking the brunt and I'm not at all comparing, you know, this, what is hap what's happened, that at, uh, attitude towards Hollywood is the same, but it's similar in the sense that like, not everybody is like this, but the perception is everybody is like this from the people who want, who don't want to look at it with a more objective eye. Yeah. You know, that perception is far from genuine. I believe there's there's news media outlets that are pushing uh, uh, BS like that for their own profit, mm -hmm. and, oh, totally. and and, I mean, and damn the consequences. You know, they don't they don't care. They're looking at their profit. They want those viewers. You know, like Fox News's biggest star couldn't have settled a thirty two million dollars sexual harassment lawsuit, not his first. Uh, <laughs> Without being extremely wealthy enough, that thirty-two million is not going to put. You're you talking on about Bill O'Reilly, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And like, so there is a lot of money in this, in preying on and perpetuating uh, this this grievance culture, and yeah. it obviously has led to violence on yeah. the streets. Yeah, and I tell you again, being an expat. Uh, you know, being way over here and watching all of this happen, it just breaks my heart. It's this weird thing. And it's, it's, it's almost like some sort of syndrome that expats, uh, at least expats over here who I've spoken with, it's a syndrome where we feel responsible, uh, uh, but helpless. You know, we should be doing something. We should be saying or doing do you, something to contribute. Do you, do you think that you have some form of survivor's guilt? I think so. I think that's what like yeah. you 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 got out and I don't have to deal with this, but there are a lot of people who saw I mean on that obviously it's not I think the same, so. But yeah, but I think it I think some it's version some, of it. Yeah, I think there's a version of it. It's 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 uh I call it some sort of expat syndrome. Yeah, and it, and it's yeah. akin to survivor's guilt. But it, yeah, it, it gets, can, it's gotten me it, it's gotten me both in a lot of trouble, but it's also given me somewhat of an advancement here. I've become uh, I've become one of the go-to uh, people when anything big happens in the states, um, mm -hmm. you know George Floyd or or um, you know January sixth. The the national news yeah. media 
has been coming to me and giving me a chair and letting me speak on yeah. national TV and stuff. And that's an honor. And, 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 you know, that's, but that's also humbling. bears a big weight of responsibility. Thank you. I can imagine. And I take that responsibility and I can carry a load. I'm a, I'm a champion power lifter, so I can hold, I can handle some weight, <laughs> but I would rather be, you know, put me in the spotlight for something else. I, I, I wish I could be in the spotlight for something else instead of the go-to guy when crazy, crazy shit happens in America. Then they come and yeah. talk to me. It's, it's can, sad. It's I, just, it's, it, it contributes to the syndrome. Yeah, I can I can see that, and it's sad that there's so much, as you said, crazy shit. Yeah, that yeah. I mean, I mean, the the last four years were oh, the God. most tumultuous of wow. my existence, and mine as well. It's yeah, and you just wonder, like, how does a country that is known for being this like stable, you know, government and stay in stable, like, I don't know. I guess that's not, there's no better term for it. Get to the point where it could put a game show host who, who's not even a smart game show host and has no experience in any form of leadership, uh, in the most important position in the world. I think that he and his minions have ruined America to the point that I believe that I will go to my resting place without having seen America recover from his four years. I, I truly I believe worry, that. I think we're in for some I rough times. We're, I, I agree. I, and, but the thing is, it's, it's not because of him. It's, he's just a symptom of it. And I feel like the symptom, the, the real disease is, is this, I, this like idea of the American dream is sort of a thing of the past because of the economics of this country where like there is, a, there was there's stagnation for the middle class and it feels like there is unless you are lucky enough to somehow escape out of it into a there's no sense of upward mobility anymore and that that sense of like uh and then you then on top of it is white grievance and where there's still like it's not like white supremacy is is limited to fanatics it's permeated throughout our culture and as it's starting to change and it's changing only because of the internet and social media which is providing it's giving people access to information but also exposure to other mindsets yeah so it's changing so rapidly that the 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 sort of like white establishment and I don't, and I don't mean establishment in like a, you know, new world order elitist yeah. kind of yeah. sense, but just the, within the culture of like, why does the default as it changes just slightly, just slightly, it's not made huge strides. It's got yeah. a little, but that there is a sense of like, I didn't have to work for anything and now I do. And that makes me angry. Yeah. And, you know, and like, not to say, I mean, you encounter so many people and they, you introduce the idea of white privilege and they're like, I'm poor and not privileged. And they don't understand that like you have had, even though you don't have much, it's been easier for you to have that than it would have right. been if you were a and person they're, of color. And they're, they're at least not suppressed because of the color of their skin. Therein exactly. lies 
an enormous amount of privilege. Yeah. Even if, if it doesn't have to be as extreme as like you were, you know, beaten or, or shot by police or you experienced a, a, a cross in your yard, they don't understand that like even just not having a shop owner follow you around the store with their eyes while you're in your shop is an example of this of being privileged. I tell you the micro, and, the microaggressions, the micro racism is, is there's a bigger, it, it almost shouldn't be called micro because it has a huge mm-hmm. effect on the daily lives of so many. Yeah. 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 I'm sure you add a million of these up and then you, you have just such a different experience and it, our, our individualism within the country instead of collectivism doesn't allow in within our own culture, doesn't allow us to, I shouldn't say doesn't allow us, has made it difficult for us to look at the experience of others and go, oh, they're not having it, you know, it's not, they're not being treated fairly and they're not being treated even in a, in a, in a welcoming sense. I think America got real selfish over the last four years. And I agree with you. Uh, Trump, Trump was not the cause of it. You know, he was, he's, he's, he's a symptom. Of, of something yeah, I that think, was already I think there was a but but I think but, there was a pre, an existing president who was the cause of it a previous president I should say who who led to who was things the decisions made during their administration have led to so many of our problems right now you're talking about Bush or Reagan 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 okay yeah Reagan who was hailed as as a yeah. who was deified amongst even moderate conservatives. Yeah. The, their, their His economic made. policies is what brought us to this. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People need to check the, their history. The, People need to check I their know. history because that's quite true. Reagan was not Defunding, the savior. No, not at all. It was the opposite. Quite the opposite. Defund, defunding mental institutions yeah. has led to an enormous boom in homeless populations. Yep. Yep. Right now, Los Angeles is facing... This we're in a full-on crisis when it comes to homelessness in this in this in our community. Tell me about it because I hear people talking about how you can't go anywhere. It used to be that the homeless were kind of uh, uh, they they congregated in certain areas of Los Angeles, but now people are saying you can't go anywhere without the homelessness being right in your face. Is that right? There's still areas like I live. I, I'm not wealthy at all. I mean, I'm renting an apartment, but I my my building is in the middle of a nice neighborhood. I'm adjacent to a very nice neighborhood. You don't see it. I mean, okay. you may see occasionally somebody moving up and down the street. However, Venice, which is you know a, a seaside town of like of now of very expensive homes, but not necessarily the uh, <laughs> suburban utopia that is Sherman Oaks um, is having an, an insanely uh, bad crisis in homelessness where wow. they're having fires that are that are being set that they've had they've they've actually have a, a I don't want to say mobile fire unit because that's what all fire trucks are but like <laughs> a smaller version of a fire truck that's can get around more quickly, more easily, and okay. has like a small tank on it, so they can go and put out tiny fires. And um, and they've had to like it's basically smaller than an ambulance, but bigger than a pickup truck. Okay, okay. And they've had to utilize this in order to help put out these 
because they can respond faster with this. What is it like little camp, campfires being lit by the by the homeless? And yeah, and wow. there's and you know and like unhoused people tend to accumulate. I hate to say it, trash, but a lot of the stuff is heavily flammable. There's not a real concern with like safety because when yeah. you don't have things to lose why do you don't have the same like if a fire breaks out in my kitchen i'm gonna freak out and use a fire signature and put it out but like i have a bear the responsibility of not only my own belongings but the that of my landlord and i think that there's just less of a sense of personal responsibility that understandably comes from yeah from being unhoused that and also probably just an anger of like you got to this point because your government doesn't ensure that you are safe. Um, see, see, and there's the there's one of the things about you know I talked about perspective. Uh, I never really thought too much about this when I was living back home, but here, where I can experience. Um, uh, you know, for example, I've had like seven or eight shoulder surgeries and mm-hmm. more recently a neck surgery. That stuff would have bankrupted me. Well, I mean, I wouldn't have gotten the surgeries because there would have come yeah. a point to where I would have lost my job because I wouldn't have been able to work and the medical bills would have bankrupted me. So here, that's just not an issue. You just don't have to think about that. So you want to talk about perspective, because when I then see that the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States is unpaid medical bills. Mm -hmm. And when I see that the people on the right don't want to expand, um, uh, you know, there's there's no reason why um, the self-proclaimed greatest country on earth should not be taking better care of its people. So there's the perspective I get. Tiny little Norway, and 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 I can have a standard of living where at the at, I, I at least I don't have to worry about bankruptcy because of medical bills because everything's free mm-hmm. because we're willing to pay the taxes to make it that way. So. And and that's the issue is is for we were it's a country born out of anti-taxation i mean literally that's why the country exists it's baked into our culture and our capitalist system whereas the accumulation of wealth is sort of like the the driving force behind so many people it both prevents people from paying more taxes but also we have this a for-profit healthcare system which makes so much money and so much profit is not incentivized to do away with it I mean, and I understand the difficulty of like, how do you eliminate a part of your economy that is a huge part of your economy? How do you just outright bar it? Which is what you'd have to do to move to a socialized system. I think that if any president, any administration was being honest, they would say, look, Medicare for all is our goal, but this is at least a 10 year process. Yeah. And it's, I'm not going to be in office to see it through, but as long as we start on this path, we can get there. <laughs> I know it's, it's, a, it's a, gosh, now I'm depressed, <laughs> but, but, no, I mean, but, but it all goes back to what I say about perspective, you know, and, and in being over here and living the way I live here and then seeing how way too many people are living back home because mm-hmm. of that sense of American elitism, because of that right wing stubbornness. Um, 
it it's 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 heartbreaking. It doesn't have to be that but way. But also but also we it's not exclusive to the right, the drive to make money and, and to stay on no, top it's financially. Not. It's not. I, I think that it, there's a progressive left which is gaining traction, which wants to see, you know, socialized medicine, which wants to see education. Well, some people want it to be free. I think even just for uh, coming back to my educational experience, which I I didn't um, talk fully about, about how I got out of school, eight years of, of uh, school with no student debt, partly because, like I said, I worked the whole time, but a lot of it had to do with school was cheap when I was there. I spent $2,000 a semester on on classes and, and books yeah. and, like, that's nothing compared to what it is now. Yeah. And that was a public state university yeah. and which was a commuter school, which I didn't have to pay to live on campus. And I had, but I, I mean, and on top of that, I am very privileged in the sense that like I had, when I was born, I had a great aunt who set aside a mutual fund for me. Okay. And, you know, so 20 years of that, yeah. of that growing. Now I had, and it was not an enormous amount of, but it was allowed me to, you know, put down payments on a couple cars and pay yeah. for schooling and still have left o- enough left over and yeah. pay for my me to make my student family and, and and to live off of after I moved here. I mean, I stretched out for a long time. It, it's not the only thing. I it was still I paid for most of my school through scholarships and 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 my own savings, but it helped a lot. Yeah. yeah. That being said, without it, I might be. Ten to twelve thousand dollars in debt for student loans. I know people who are, you know, close to one hundred k, and and like that's ridiculous. And they it's went to crazy. the same school as I did. It's crazy. It's just nuts. And I and and again, the self-proclaimed mm. greatest nation on earth cannot do better for its citizens. Come on. Mm. So and that's and that's you've saddled now an entire generation was saddled with student loan debt. Which, like I said, has precluded them from home ownership. So they're just dumping money into entertainment because there's no, you know, there's nothing to sort of like uh, aspire to um, that is that costly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's so the entertainment companies are making enormous amounts of money. Don't let any of them fool you. Nobody is hurting. (laughs) But is that being passed down to lower levels? Absolutely not. Oh really? Absolutely okay. Not. Yeah. No, it's all at the top, and it's it's it, it, it's always and this is true throughout American industry. The first people that have to that have that have sacrifice, it's always at the bottom. When there's layoffs, it's always at the bottom. Yeah. yeah. And when there's when there's you know it's it's not solely the bottom, but that's where the majority of it comes from. Right. Right. How how bad so, how bad are things in California now? Uh, if well, I if, if I listen to the talking points of the right, it's it's a hell uh, it's a hellhole over there. I can't believe that that's not, true. I but 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 again, I don't not, know because I I don't know anyone who's there. Here's the thing, and there it's still no matter how bad it's being made out to be, it's still one of the best places in the world to live yeah. you know there's like we don't face daily uh fears of being kidnapped or 
persecuted or murdered or no one's getting abducted off the streets no. because of their i mean people are you know there's obviously children like that that's this stuff that's always existed but it's sure. not sure it's it's not it's not we're not living like like israel just had and continues to have with open almost open warfare on the streets between palestinians and, and the israelis jewish yeah. and israelis yeah. which because of netanyahu sort of like boiled over into violence on the streets now but we are experiencing uh asian americans are experiencing yes. this because of these randomized mm. attacks on because of the pandemic yeah. because and so much of it was fueled by when you when your president goes out there and says this is the China, cause of the China virus. See, and this is because of China. And Americans aren't smart enough. I shouldn't say aren't smart enough. Aren't haven't taken the time to go. Oh, an Asian person I see, I right, don't. I right. can't tell the difference between whether they're from Japan or China or Modesto. Now, you know. Now, yeah. now, now you were saying earlier. That, you were saying earlier. Every, everything that we're experiencing today is not Trump's fault, and that's true. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. But but he most certainly, most certainly has made things much worse than they should. He exacerbated be. the problem he, intentionally. He, he was so. Um, so so narcissistic. I mean, he, I I don't think the man has a heart that beats. I think he's got a lump of coal there. How 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 he is able to say and do the things that he does, and then just lean back and watch the results of that, and not feel an ounce of guilt, is is yeah. it's just it, it fascinates me. It's fascinating it, that he can be is, that kind of a human. It is terrifying that, and then to spend three years yeah it was three years in office and not have a major crisis and then have the biggest crisis in a century prolonged crisis i mean i think 9-11 was probably a bigger crisis but it was so acute compared to the pandemic um and then fail at it so miserably out of sheer apathy and negligence like he killed half a million people out of just not. And I'm caring. glad you say it that way. I say it as well that he killed half a million people. His inaction, his inaction directly let, led to immense ooh. suffering. And again, I mean, and again, that he can do those kind of things and lean back and it's all fine. And he's not apologetic, apologetic in the slightest bit. It's absolutely fascinating that that kind of a human being is, for, exists. For him to get vaccinated himself and not come out publicly and say, this Thank is you. safe, you should do it. Yeah. And instead drive the, this, this, this grievance culture to, because it will benefit him in, if, I don't even, th- I mean, people like to think that he's playing some kind of 4D chess. I don't think it's I possible. He's I not think smart it, enough. I don't, I think it's very much in the moment I like to be clapped for. So I go out there on stage and I'm clapped for, I like to hear my name on TV. So if I say this, I'll hear my name on TV. Uh, and I think it's very simplistic and very, I agree. uh, driven and there's no, there's no grand scheme of it. No, it's that just, man has a, is, that man has a classic lizard brain. He's only thinking mm-hmm. about himself and his own survival. <laughs> and only in, the, and only in that moment. And only in that moment. 
he doesn't have the intelligence to plot and plan. I really don't believe he does. Yeah. And I, I, but, but this, but even to have caused, which he'll never own up to, even think that he's responsible for that so many people suffered. And then there was, there was a way out of this, uh, of this, of that responsibility where he can come out a hero still to the, to these people to, and to more Americans than he deserves by by saying, by saying I, I, we lifted the safeguards to get this vaccine out. I've got it. It's safe. The faster you get it, the faster we get back to normal (laughs) and you can throw off the shackles of oppression. That is a face mask. (laughs) And he but would, still won't do it. He, is, he would still me, be president if he was smart enough to do exactly what you described. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but, God. Well, well, it's, I don't know if that, guy. I mean, the, the vaccine didn't come. It wasn't like, I re- think, it wasn't a pr- available and announced until after the election. So, yeah, but, I'm, yeah, I, I, but I think if he would have admitted that the, that the, the virus was what it was, if he would have been a true leader in that sense, when it came to the virus, mm-hmm. then I don't think he would have lost as many people as he lost. Oh, Cause no. I do believe he did he lose it. I don't think it's so much that, that, I mean, people that did not vote for him, uh, for the most part knew from day one that they were not going to vote for him. But along the way, he mm-hmm. lost so many Republicans because of his own stupidity and incompetence. I, I think yeah, that my, if, he my, would have handled, if he would have handled the virus correctly, it would have been enough for him to still be president today. My own parents, who are lifelong Reagan-worshipping Republicans, didn't vote for him. And that happened a lot. Because they are like, yep. and they voted for Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah. And like, because Joe Biden seems safe. And it's so funny because... Like Joe Biden is so much more progressive than Barack Obama was, yeah. but people hate Obama so much. And it's like, dude, he was kind of just like more of a moderate Republican than yeah. people would want to admit. Yeah. But yeah. the racism is so strong in this country that even if you didn't agree with his policies, it does not equal the vitriol towards no. him that you have that most people have no that him being black it just exacerbates that and that's the straight up truth the straight up truth is that he's gotten a lot of more a lot more um uh resistance and a lot more pepper thrown at him because he's a black man and and a lot of white folks lost their mind and the foolishness that was created by reagan just came to a head when Barack Obama came in as president, and, yeah. that, and that led directly to what we saw over the last four years. Mm. Unfortunately, it's, I think for sure. I think we had white Americans had this sort of easing of of uh, since since emancipation. Okay, they can have this, but no more. And this line, this imaginary line. Okay, you can have this, but no more. Okay, you can have this, but no more. And through segregation, through Jim Crow, to civil rights, to more of an integration. And then there had to be a line in the sand. And Barack Obama's election was that. Yeah. And then that's yeah. when they went, but no more. And that, and that, But this time they meant it. Yeah. And racists, white racists. Yeah. Um, <sighs> Crazy but, stuff. Crazy stuff. 
I think yeah, I think about it, I think what, about an hour. What does ago. it look like in? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, but in twenty years, what does this look like? Well, like uh, I said, now you have it, even Obama himself. I was listening to the, the interview he did with the New York Times on their podcast, and he was like, "You have a generation who will grow up having a black president been normal." So yeah. it won't in twenty years. It won't be the same. Hopefully, hopefully it's not worse. I don't know. I guess I'm thinking a little more dark, darkly on the whole thing because, like I said earlier, I don't think that I will see America come back to normal. Whether it's no, yeah normal, like when it comes to unity, when it comes to peace <laughs> between us, I don't think it's going to come back to to anything normal within the rest of my life. You know, I, I that's pretty dark, but that's what I feel. I I don't I know what you're saying. I at the beginning of the pandemic I thought, you know, when's the last time America was like solidly or when are times when we were solidly sort of like on the same page? And it's either come in times of crisis, like post nine eleven, or when we landed on the moon. And I thought maybe the pandemic is it. Maybe this is the time that that yeah. we will sort of like come back together and say we need to protect everybody we need to fight this we need to to win this this like war against the pandemic and that lasted three weeks yeah you know it's sad <laughs> and then, then it's sad it is and there was too much money to be made by the tucker carlson's of the world and the rupert murdoch's to say yep we're all on the same page we're gonna get through this together instead of i'm tired you know pushing i'm tired of wearing a mask it doesn't do anything Here's my protest. Do you think Tucker Carlson could make as much money as a nice guy as he does now as a complete and total jerk? Because and I and I asked that and I asked that because I think I think you know I I don't know if Tucker Carlson is truly a bad guy or is this all just is all this an act though because he sees what it gets him paid. I'll tell you why it's not an act. I'm him. I'm sure he pushes it because it is resulting in profit. But uh, if you ever watch a document, this is a little bit of a spoiler. There's a documentary on uh, HBO called the a series documentary series called the lady in the Dale. And uh, if anyone wants to go in blind, stop listening. Just go watch it. <laughs> I don't know how you feel. I don't know how you feel, John. <laughs> they'll, um, they'll come back. They can stop, but they'll come uh, back. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, stop listening to this part of it. Just fast forward yeah. a minute. Um, uh, and I don't want to spoil it for you, so I'm going to get your permission to continue. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So Lady in the Dale is about um, a this car in the mid-70s that was developed called the Dale. It was a three-wheel car. It, the, the gas mileage was it through the roof in the times of an energy crisis. And no one's ever heard of it. So you go into it, you think, oh, this is about, this is like Tucker, a man in his dream, or like who killed the electric car. (laughs) Turns out the woman behind it was a trans woman um, who was also a a con artist and had participated in all these cons throughout her life and finally sort of like got this job through a bit of legitimacy and, and legitimately drove interest in it but could not um come through with the product so uh they are within so and there's a lot of investigations it was in los angeles in the mid-70s and there's a lot of investigations uh into it at the time both 
criminal and uh, from the news media. And I don't remember if it was a news director or if he was an investigative reporter, but they're interviewing this guy who was involved back then. And most of the people they interview are respectful of their trans identity and are focusing on their actions and not their identity. But there's this one guy who is just deplorable in how they are discussing um, uh, Elizabeth, I can't remember the last name, uh, as a trans person and refuses to continually misgenders her, refinologists. And I didn't put it together, even though the name was there, but the last name was Carlson. And then it kind of hit me later. Oh, that's his dad. Oh, that's Tucker's dad. So this is where he gets it it from. And then it was like, okay, this is not an act. This is baked into his, his persona. And that explains um, a lot. Yeah. And if you watch the, if you watch the documentary, not knowing that, like as I did and didn't put it together, because I, why would you think that yeah. it's not top of brain? It was just, this guy is a real scumbag, even into his late seventies. <laughs> and, but had I known going in, I don't think I would have, it, it would have just, I don't know, made more sense than one of those, his, you know, I was really hoping Man, we have gotten away Way from filmmaking talk. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say earlier. I think it was like like an hour ago. I was asking you about your trip, your your journey from Florida to to California. Oh, I don't yeah. even I don't even think we've gotten to California yet. We're probably hovering <laughs> somewhere around Colorado on our way over to. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me ask you this. Uh, let me to put to yeah, put us sure. to put us back on track. Well, f- first of all, let me say uh, that we haven't come off track. We're just having a conversation. That's what my oh, podcast true. is That's all true. about. It's a conversation. We have a general idea. You know, I have reasons for wanting you to come on. You know, I'm very interested in, in everything you do. But in that process of getting to know you, we 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 wander a little, and there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But let me ask you this though. So when you got to California, mm-hmm. yeah, we've got you to California. Yeah, you you um uh you 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 found a place to live. Uh, yeah, say I'll you tell had- you about the trip. It, w- it was very easy. It, t- it t- went up 75, made a ride of the 10, drove for three days. Hurry up. <laughs> there you and go. It was a very un- that's a short uninteresting that's journey. A sh- that's a one page yeah, chapter right there. <laughs> it was a very uninteresting journey across the country. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah. So, so, so when you get here then and you've got a little money in your pocket, um, what is the first thing you did to make money? Did you have to get so some kind of I, side gig or did you get right into writing a script or had you already written a script? Oh, oh no. Oh, no, no. There was, I mean, I'd written stuff, but I, it wasn't until I moved here because I knew I wanted to go into TV writing right after film school because my school was very much like, because of Blair Witch, in this model, focused on a model of entrepreneurial filmmaking, which actually kind of funny enough led to Vice Wars uh, in a way, but like, a very DIY, do it yourself, finance yourself. May and uh, um, one of my my uh, uh, friends in school made. So we had they established a grad program for our school right as I finished uh, undergrad, and I had applied, but I don't. I didn't get it, even though I should have, because I was an alternate, and then two people dropped out. But they decided just to go with a smaller program anyway. In retrospect, I'm glad I didn't. 
Um, and I was kind of on the fence about it anyway, because I was like, I don't want to be here for another two to three years. I want to kind of get my career started. Yeah. Um, so it was a, it was a blessing in disguise, but a few of my friends did go into it. And one of them, uh, Danny, um, was made. So the, the thesis of your, your, um, graduate studies was to make a feature film on a very small budget. So, which is not self-finance, but you need to find your own financing. And how do you do that? That sounds so intimidating. (laughs) It is. It's impossible. I wouldn't say it's impossible. This was this is pre crowdfunding. So so who who do you go to? Who do you, you go to, you go to rich people, you go and you, and you find a lot of, People How do you find who, them? Who, I mean, through connections and like, um, you know, we had a number of financiers and, oh, I say we, I'll get to that in a second, but you just kind of like hit up the rich people you know. And is that why say, networking you, is so important in Hollywood? You've got to network, well, you've got to meet people, you got to talk to strangers, get to yes, know them. Yes, but this is. But not so much in this instance. This okay. is like you're still you're still in Florida. Okay, you yeah. need to find financing. Yeah. So it's like you know, hit up your rich uncle and his rich friends. It's you know, find a doctor who has some extra money to burn. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, there's like it's they're in and like they're first out uh, for return on investment. Mm-hmm. Should your movie make any money? But um, you know. It, it's very unlikely that's going to happen yeah. just because of the nature of it. So anyways, uh, so this friend was working on this project that he had started while we were in undergrad and was having some trouble and brought me in as to help him write it. So uh, we, we wrote this movie and then for the year after, about a year and a half after I moved here, we went to make it in Utah and, um, it's available. You can get it on iTunes or is it iTunes. I know it's on Amazon. I don't know if it's on iTunes without looking it up. It's called the attic door. It's uh, a quiet drama about two kids left alone in the, um, the Western wilderness around the late 1800s. Um, and we made it for peanuts. Yeah. Uh, and so that sort of like entrepreneurial film filmmaking was what our school pushed. Okay. Um, and that's that DIY. I've always been a fan of DIY stuff. Like when I was in a band, we were doing it all ourselves. We, you know, financed our own demos and our yeah. own show. And it's, there's just like a, uh, there's more a, control like, of the punk, process. There's more control, but there's also like a punk spirit to it uh, where it's just like, we're just going to do this and fuck everybody else. Yeah. And, and I just, I love that sort of like method of doing things. Well, there's because, a certain like kind of said, motivation you, you, in that, that you don't get if you've got, and, yeah. and you have, and you have control. Yeah. You have creative control. You don't have to answer it anyway. Sometimes it's not good. Sometimes you need somebody to sort of like guide you. But, uh, but Vice Wars was very much a DIY thing, and I love that. I still do love that bit of filmmaking. And I give, you know, sort of like younger writers advice. It's like if you are doing this as a, as a writer, especially like a writer who's not working or not a working writer, all you're creating is a PDF. 
and at the end of the day, you know, you just have a PDF that you send to people. But when you, when you make something, here's something tangible that you can, people will watch and and enjoy or not enjoy or whatever. And so I recommend like, even if you just make something small, make something because it keeps you going as a writer instead of just, here's a PDF I sent to somebody. And, um, I've always thought though that if if someone writes a script that they believe in, and they try to pitch it, you know, and get it into movie format, and that doesn't work, does there ever come a point where you think, um, because I, I always thought that may, maybe they would try and make it make it make a make it into a book and self publish that, or do you always just hold on to that script and hope that it hits as a film? I, I mean, some do. You know, I, I some people go and write novels. And, yeah, because it's not that big of a self, step to uh, self-publish. Yeah, it's not that big of a step, is it? From 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 screenplay to to, to book. It's it's a very different style of writing. Yeah, but like it, scripts are so much more streamlined, yeah. and but also like you're constantly finding a way to represent visually what you're. I mean, that's the entire the entire idea behind a script is like this has to work visually yeah so whereas on on a prose page you can just be like you know john thought about whatever as he was making a sandwich (laughs) and like how do you you know john thought about his own mortality while making a tuna sandwich you can say on the page and you get it but sorry, I didn't mean to pick on you, John. I was just uh, the first name I thought of. I, I, I felt a chill but down I, my spine when you said my name and mortality. I was like, I'm wait sorry, a minute, I'm sorry, it wasn't, what does he know? It was, I was just, I was just trying to find some like heavy subject. But like, how do you, sh- how do you visually show that right, on screen? I see. I see. You know, you're making tuna, but how do you? Other than going, I'm thinking about my own mortality. You know, <laughs> yeah, you, it's yeah. how do you represent that? So like. That's a, it's a very different way of writing. What do you, what do you like best writing or directing and why? Uh, I mean, directing is get like satisfies that need of like seeing something come to, um, you know, fruition. And I always liked it, uh, during school. I mean, I more so than the writing because the writing is like, it's like just the drawing before you build, you know? Yeah. yeah. And whereas like directing is building, but I think I'm a better writer than director. Do you? Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, but it's also so much harder to direct because it costs a lot of money. Um, to like put something together, you know, yeah. as opposed to like, that's the advantage of the PDF is the PDF is cheap. <laughs> it's you know you don't need much to to put that together yeah. so um is it- i think just for the sake of of something coming to fruition directing is more satisfying i see um and it's more involved than like because you're actually you know you can put on the page and, and visualize that however you you see fit but now you actually have to implement that and, and turn that into a reality so have you ever written you know, uh have you ever written side by side with someone or or are all of your writings just well that, that film i was that film i was talking about um that we made that was uh, a, a partnership in the writing sense even though he was going on to direct <laughs> and sort of driving it uh otherwise i i've tried working with different people 
tried writing with different people and it's never it's very hard because there are a lot of writing teams and especially in television you really have to find somebody whose sensibilities and work ethic and uh, and and method of working match your own in a in enough of a way to be able to function as a team yeah and that's a hard thing to do and like it's especially hard once you've kind of gotten down the road and like, like I have this, this, these friends who are on the, the last show I was on, um, who've been a writing team for a long time and they were in college and both part of a sketch comedy troupe and just started writing together then. Yeah. So now this is like, you know, 15 years later and they're, they're a very established and, and pretty successful writing team. But it's like, have they not started that in college and, and instead down the road in your career that wouldn't have happened and also it's not financially beneficial because of the way that to write with another to write with another because uh it's this is a point of contention with the writer's guild contracts is that if if you're a writing team you're paid as one entity and then you split it however you see fit which is I'm almost I probably exclusively 50, 50. Um, but, uh, so, so in a writing, in a writer's room on a show, it's, Oh, it's a little unfair because you have two people doing work, but they're only getting paid as one person. I can see see. because you get a separate fee. Like if you're in a, in a room in a writer's room on a TV show, each sort of like writer or writer entity goes off and writes a script and you're paid separately to write that script. Yeah. So I could see if that was a shared thing because you're turning in one thing, but otherwise you are, you're, you have two people who are getting paid for the price of one. And it's not like they're splitting up their day. Like I'm taking the morning shift and you're taking the afternoon. And (laughs) then, so it's a little unfair. So like that writing teams are, 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 this happens that they're paid in this way. I mean, I think most teams in Hollywood would push for two salaries, uh, but also accept like a salary and a half. I see. So yeah. they're yeah. getting paid 75%, yeah. but it's still better. Yeah. I'm sure they don't want to overprice themselves because then, then they're not going to get a gig, but at the same mm-hmm. time they want to be fairly compensated for the work that they do. So they're kind of in. A- that's that's the key thing. It's a, to be fairly compensated, yeah. and I think that that's unfair. And that's it's interesting that the the business is changing so much so fast right now because of streaming and because of like that. There's yeah. so much content and there's so many shows that, but the shows don't last as long. Yeah. So it's a lot more people making less money than. 10, 20 years ago. That's a little rough, isn't it? How how are you guys going to deal with I, that? Or is there no I way mean, to I'm deal not, with it? It just is what it is. I'm not going to say, I will never say like, oh, woe is me. Because for the like, you know, if you're a TV writer, it's a great job. Even though it's, you might not be as wealthy as some people think you are. I mean, most people are squarely middle class. And most people at the lower end, like I am, are you're still a renter. Um, up until, you know, you're kind of deep into it. Um, but, uh, your, your job is like sitting around talking and making each other laugh, you know, (laughs) especially in a comedy room. It's not anything to complain about at all. Um, but because of the way it's changing, 
the 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 large streaming services and, and corporate companies studios are like sort of have the upper hand in in um not only contract negotiations but just uh compensation so like part of writer's compensation would for years would come in the form of of residuals yeah. which the way the residual system works is because it's an antiquated model um say you write an episode of like mixed dish like i the last thing i did um and that episode so that you get paid for that script and then next once it airs a second time so your your script fee includes first airing the next time it airs you get another 50 percent of your script fee and then the next time it airs, you get 50% of that. And that continues until it reaches like a, a, a base point and then it's just every time it airs. Okay. Now the airing is not like, it's not like, it's however many, it's not like it plays in Denver and it plays in Chicago and it plays in Atlanta and you get paid three times all on the same night. But like if it plays th three times in one market, then okay. you get paid three times for that. So okay, gotcha. back in the day when there was syndication, when there was rampant syndication, these writers would you just made bank yeah. because you know uh, uh, an episode of like Home Improvement aired or Seinfeld aired in syndication oh, is still on in syndication. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Larry David has more money than God, <laughs> and uh, and I'm sure a lot of other. I mean, there not like there were a lot of other writers on on, oh, on Seinfeld. Were, sorry, all the other writers on Seinfeld are doing pretty good for themselves or at least did pretty good for themselves. Yeah. So, or friends is another example, you know, and those are like the, the crime of the crop hits, but like there was more money being. So now syndication doesn't exist. <coughs> I was lucky enough to write an episode of Cougar town, which was then on TBS, TBS very generously. And because of their model would pay for five airings just up front because they knew they were going to air this at least five times because of their way that their, their yeah. schedule works. You know, they don't have a ton of original content, so they just replay stuff a lot. Um, but like the, even that's kind of a dying animal. Uh, yeah. Yeah. but, but like Netflix, you make a Netflix show and you're a writer on stranger things. There's no residuals because it's not airing at all. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't technically air. It's you go and you decide to watch it. Yeah. So there's no back end in streaming. It's just everything you get up front. But the compensation up front is equal to, uh, like, you get paid as much to write an episode of Stranger Things as you would to write an episode of, like, The Last Ship on TNT. But The Last Ship is going to air four or five times and you're going to get compensated for that where stranger things is going to be watched by a hundred million people and you don't get, you so don't you see get it. I mean, I, there's some, there's some baked in, but it's not very much. And it um, all comes up front in that case on, on, uh, on a Netflix. Yeah. But program. it's the same amount. Yeah. You're not, you're yeah. not making any additional money. No. So it's, it's become like, you just kind of know this is what you're going to get paid and you take these things and you hope for, to develop them. But it's also harder because I know I keep talking, but like oh, okay. <laughs> uh, the streamers have found that unless it's like a mega hit, they don't gain any new subscribership 
past two seasons of a show. So like, that's why you see a lot of Netflix shows, a lot of other shows get canceled after two years. Now, if it's like a huge hit, like Stranger Things or The Boys on, on Amazon or something, it'll keep going. But otherwise... That's just not. In I've it been for them wondering about that uh, on Netflix. Uh, wondering if it's that these shows have gotten <clears throat> canceled because of lack of popularity, or are things just on hold because of Corona? I mean, some COVID definitely slowed down a lot of things, and like, um, you know, put on hold a lot of projects. But I, a lot of streaming shows just don't come back because they have a target of numbers and it, none of it's based on advertising money, which uh, is, yeah, yeah. which makes it even crazier because right. like ratings obviously drive advertising revenue. Cause you can say, well, we know a million people watch this and it's this price, but 3 million people are watching this show. So if you want to advertise on that show, it's going to cost you more, you know, I, but this isn't, this isn't ad based stuff. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know? So, at least with Netflix and like some of the other ones. It's a weird platform. Netflix is a weird platform. I mean, I like it, but it's just so weird. It's so different. I don't, I wonder if people are used to the differentness of Netflix contra traditional TV or traditional uh, uh, theater film. You know, there is no advertising there and there is no, it's just, I I think when people who are of a certain age or younger, this is just how things work. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's like Spotify. Like if you can listen to anything you want at any time. And that was not <laughs> like when I was a kid, that wasn't the case. Right. You had to like wait for it to come on the radio or go out and buy a CD. Yeah. And hopefully the rest of the album equals the 12 bucks you paid to hear that one song whenever you want. I miss that. And I miss that like, expectancy. I miss that oh, excitement I, I of too. wondering what the album was going to be like. Yeah, I do too. I miss digging through bins to yes. find new stuff. It's so easy right now. And it's all algorithmic based. And oh God, I there's hate just, it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it. it's weird. I mean, I hate it, but I love having the ability to stream whatever I want. I love well, that I don't see, have to I, load But I up see it on 100. both ends. You know, I'm a, I'm an avid listener of music, but I'm also a musician. And yeah. it's kind of, yeah, so there's I mean, a little bit of duality yeah. there. Yeah. Well, the I mean, Spotify does not pay artists no. fairly at all. No, not even so, close. Um, not even close. And, but like, you know, I, as a user, it's fantastic because I don't have to, have a book of CDs in my car yeah. to, to listen to when I'm driving around running errands, you know? So anyways, but back to the, the streaming services. So now, now you have like to come back to stranger things that's done three seasons and made 25 episodes. And the first season I was on Mixish, we did 23 episodes. So like Mixish has since been canceled, but if you are a show that fits enough of a hit, like The Office or Parks and Recreation or Brooklyn yeah. Nine yeah. or whatever, you're doing, you know, six, five, six, seven times the number of those episodes. And it's so if you are, it's one, it's, it's uh, job stability. And two, there's growth on those shows because you can get promoted as the show goes. And then obviously the, the financial, um, the, you know, of it, of like 
having a successful show or even a show that just lasts and yeah. the streamers are not are not making lasting shows they're more interested in things that are going to bring in subscribers yeah. so it's like a whole different model and it's it's tough navigating uh this and finding a way to, for writers to like and another in other crafts too to make to not take a huge pay cut compared to what what they were making now new writers there's way more opportunities than there were 10 years ago That's because right. there's so many shows yeah, but you're not working as long right, because right. of yeah all these all these yeah. streamers and they're all making their own content but you're not working as long and this is an, a thing and a, a lot of people don't think about because they don't you know know how it works but when when you're a tv writer and you work on it or on a show in any capacity and you make i don't know say you make two thousand dollars a week just an arbitrary number you doesn't mean you make a hundred thousand dollars a year yeah, yeah. because the show you're on might only last six months <laughs> right. and you might not work the rest of the year so you're actually only making at two thousand dollars a week fifty thousand dollars a year yeah. so you're not wealthy until you get to like the top it's right. you're just making a living and people tend to think, oh, Hollywood, everybody's rich. And it's like, no, you have a city with a lot of renters and some homeowners, but homes are, are you know, extremely expensive compared yeah, to the, the prices industry. are crazy there. Oh, God, I don't oh, know how and we're, can handle and it. The next street over, like I said, I live in a, in a very, you know, nice neighborhood. And these are homes built in the 40s and 50s, modest three bedroom, two bath, not a ton of land going for 1.2, 1.3. That's crazy. Absolutely yeah. crazy. Wow. Crazy. It's wild. And then, and then you have property tax on top of it, which is very expensive here. Yeah. So, you know, you're adding a thousand, twelve hundred dollars per month in property tax, which is, that's why when the writer like, Oh, it's in California. Like there's a, you pay a lot of tax, here, yeah. but you also get a lot for it. You sure. Know? Sure. Let, um, me, let me ask you something. When, when you were writing vice force, mm -hmm. well, let, let's say when you were writing and then you go into the directing of it and the filming of it, what was the vision that you had, uh, as far as the success of it, how strongly um, did you believe in it? How much of a financial project was this or how much, you know, compared to how much of a uh, labor of love? Because there's this thing, uh, there's well, this, yeah, no, go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, I was going to no, say, no, no, go I was going to say there's this thing uh, among artists. I, I see it among musicians and even among uh, stand-up comedians where they have very little thought that's put into the financial side of things. They just want to practice their art. Their focus, yes. their focus is so far removed from the financial side of it that the financial side of it for mm -hmm. some of them is never an issue because they're not made, they're not doing things to, 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 to make that, to, to generate that income, to make that cash come in. It is truly just a labor of love. They just want to practice their art. Where are you on that scale? Where were you on that scale when, when you were making Vice Force? I mean, it was 100% that. Like, nobody... I mean, if the, the financially achievable projects that you are, are self-financing or even crowdfunding, we did about half crowdfunded and half 
uh, self-financed. And um, the the scale at which you can do that without being, you know, independently wealthy uh, is you're making a web series, which are like, you know, like ours, short increments, a few minutes at a time. Your epi- the episodes are like five, six, seven minutes long, roughly. I, yeah, we tried to keep it to four, but, you know, as the story progressed, they needed to be a, little, a little longer. longer. Yeah. Um, but it's longer as it goes on, which I think is a good model because sure. instead of, I think, keep it as short as possible up front because uh, attention spans are very short yeah. for internet stuff. Yeah. But ours is a, is like a serialized story instead of just like, you know, episodic, here's some wacky yeah. situation that's going to go away. So yeah. I, I feel like if you're an invested enough to get to like, episode four where it starts to get lengthier then you're gonna be okay with the longer yeah uh episodes as you go i thought it was very well put um, together very well thank well you together. i it's funny because we you know i watched a lot of web series <coughs> um leaning into it and i noticed trends which were like people would I, th- I think a lot of people didn't necessarily go to film school like we did or have the same experience. So I think there was a lot of like, oh, this is how I think you do it, but it, it, <laughs> without realizing you can branch out. So a lot of shooting in apartments, a lot of shooting against your white wall department. And I would just, and, and not a lot of like visually interesting things. And it was, they were so dull. Even if the writing was sharp and good and funny, it was just dull to look at. So that was the most important thing going into it for me. Um, and like it's, it's, it was very much a labor of love. I never had any delusions about fast success. Um, if anything, the only financial thing I wanted to come out of it was being able to make another season. Um, which you're currently writing it. now, right? Yes. Writing. Then it comes, well, how do we, pay for how do we get this made so it might be another self-financing thing luckily all of us are kind of like in a much better financial position um, than we were when we started uh so maybe that won't be as difficult but a lot of it so it was all diy so it was like how do you make this interesting without having money and without shooting in a place you have complete control over uh which is your apartment so yeah the first thing we shot was the first episode um, and we, so the DP and I went downtown and scouted and we were like, okay, we know kind of like, what do you, what we want visually, like just somewhere that somebody would, would dump a body. Cause that's the story. <laughs> um, and like, where is a corner where we can shoot at and not be bothered and not be caught <laughs> which was the real thing <laughs> like how it. do we get away with this because the city of los angeles as built around like entertainment as it is is not friendly to independent filmmakers in the way you'd hope oh. so like permits are very expensive so being in orlando you needed a, a permit to shoot but like for students they were like 25 bucks a day yeah. 50 bucks a day it was so cheap here it's in the it's in thousands. You're times. kidding me. So what? like, no, and you need, ah. and you need all these, all these things to go along. But I mean, if you're, if you're shooting law and order, what's a thousand bucks to pull True. a permit? True. It's nothing. True. But if, you know, that's like 10% of our budget, you <laughs> right, know? Right. So, so we would go down there. We, we knew we would shoot on a Saturday or Sunday. So we went down there on a, on a Saturday or Sunday to scout. I don't remember which now. And find like where's the quiet corner where nobody's around, 
So we found this great location and we're like, okay, we're not going to be, we shouldn't, the cops aren't going to come by. Hopefully nobody turns us in. There's nothing's going on down here. And you can see in the first episode, there's train tracks in the back. So we got about halfway, maybe three fourths of the way through our day and the cops show up because Uh we didn't realize we were on union Pacific property the Union Pacific Railroad, okay. and they have their own, they have their own police force. So luckily, they were really cool about it, and they're like, "Just finish." They can see you're not doing anything. Like, oh, we're making a cop show, and they kind of thought that was funny. Yeah. So they were cool about it. Never had another problem. That was as far as it got. Well, that's good. They um, were cool about it. I mean, because they really could have, they really could have jammed you guys made, up. Yeah, could have torpedoed the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Um. So the rest of the stuff, the locations were like, uh, this is something that's very important in in DIY filmmaking is having the flexibility to go, okay, you have this scene and it's written, uh, you know, at a different um, location, but you might not have access to this location, but you might find something different or even better. Have the flexibility to write to that and, and this is where writing and directing kind of come in handy that you're doing both, but also being able to like refit what you're doing to whatever resource you have. Kind of a lot of flexibility, so, a lot of creativity on yes. the spot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and after a couple, you know, doing that a couple of times, I realized, Oh, we've got, you know, this is going to have to be malleable as I go. So let's keep it to, um, uh, something that can easily this scene can easily be moved somewhere else because most of the scenes are just conversations that are happening and they can happen in other places yeah. to wherever you you have so like the second episode they go to this motel and the motel the motel was always always written in there but luckily we were a friend of our, a friend uh, their parents owned this motel in Bakersfield. So, which is two hours away, but we're like, well, we get it for free and we have control over it. So we're going to go shoot in Vegas. There you go. Yeah. So we shot up there two different days. We went up there and then there's another uh, scene where they're standing outside a gas station. Uh, <laughs> I love that scene, for, by the way. I'm not going to spoil uh, it for anybody, but I love it. That uh, was one of, one of my favorite parts of the, of the whole series. I, me, me too. Those are my two favorite episodes, eight and nine. I think they turned out so good. Um, but that scene waiting outside the gas station was originally back in that motel. And we were like, we're not driving another two hours to Bakersfield. This is ridiculous. It has to take place at night just because of the timeline. So we were very lucky and found this place in a town called Castaic, which is still a good 45 minutes drive. Um, but the owner, and we won't, we went in, we talked to the owner, like, this is what we want to do. It's not going to take long. And he's like, look, as long as you don't mess with stuff uh, and, and I can see what you're doing, okay. you can, once we close, you have, you have run of the place. And he let us shoot in there like a half an hour before they closed. And we did the, the, the shot inside where they're kind of yeah. talking and walking through the, the convenience store. Yeah. And that is, oh, that's a one like just one tracking shot where they go through the whole thing out of necessity because we're like, we can't set up lights in here. We can't do different angles and whatever. It's like, we've, we have a time constraint. So that's another, another uh, way of being flexible. It's like, sure. just get this as quick as possible 
and and it looks better that way. Let me ask you something opinion. about the logistics of of, of filming. <laughs> now, for for sure. example, that scene at the gas station. How, mm-hmm. how many people are in the crew there to make a filming a scene like that happen? How many people are involved? Well, see, that's another thing that we had to be very wary of. That when we were shooting on location, and obviously, I wish we had more resources because we could have. It could have. Everything can always look and sound and be better, you know. But mm-hmm. uh, so a lot of times we had very little control over the 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 stuff we have. So you can't rig up giant flags and bounce boards and lights yeah. and to get exactly what you want. So a lot of it was shot with natural light, outside with natural light. The the gas station was lit enough that it worked. Um, and it still had the look of like, you would expect it to look like with the fluorescence, you know? Uh, I think on that day we had, besides our cast, we had our DP, we had a sound guy, um, we had makeup and we might've had like one other person. So it was a very small crew. It was like four people. And, and we, I mean, I think we shot, we shot pretty late. But I want to say we probably it was probably like four hours okay. that we got all of that, yeah, which was very run and gun. I mean, run and gun is like the their modus operandi. <laughs> um, that uh, you know, it was. I mean, in our cat, a lot of a lot of the the key to success in doing that style of filmmaking is rehearsing beforehand. And there was a rehearsal you can do at, at home. You know, you have to have everybody in one spot. You run through the lines, you get everything you want that your cast knows what to do. Yeah. So now you're just putting them in a different, maybe you adjust the blocking a little bit because you're going to figure out the shots. Um, but it's, it's just doing all that prep work gets you. And this is true even in, in big budget filmmaking, but all getting all of that on sound before you go in is what allows you to get in and out. I see. Yeah. So there's so a lot. Go ahead. No, go ahead, please. I was just saying a lot, a lot of prep and a lot of rehearsal and a lot of yeah. like seeing pardon, what works on the page and what's not. And like, what does your cast bring to it? That's different and usually better. Um, <laughs> figuring all that out. Now, was your cast uh, members um, working on any other projects at the same time, or did you have 100% of their focus and time during the filming? Um, I mean, everybody had either day jobs or they had gigs here and there. Okay. That was another thing is like, it was difficult to schedule because without right. the benefit of money and say, Hey, you can take this day off of work. Cause I'm going to compensate you for it. Yeah. You were doing it at, as, uh, at the mercy of everyone else's schedule. So like, it took a long time to film. I mean, it took us a few years to kind of from start to finish. That's a um, long time. That's a lot you know, of dedication. It's a lot of dedication. That's a, a lot, lot of belief. For- That's a lot of belief in your product. It's, it, it really is. And it's a, a really commitment to the cause. And that's kind of like another key to success in Hollywood is just putting in the work and keeping at it and just having that like fortitude and drive is so much of, of what it takes to make it. 
I think about when you talk when you talk about it taking a a, a while to, to get through the filming process. What would you have done? Or I don't want to jinx you. Maybe this isn't something to even think about. But what hmm. if what if Daniel or Taylor would have been like, man, this you know, this is taking so long. I've got another thing I could be doing. Sorry, Eric, I got to go. You know, what, 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 what would you do then? Uh, you mean like day of? Uh, you know, it just kind of comes up. Well, well you know, if, it, um, I mean, you schedule as best you can. You get yeah. everybody free. You get them to commit. If somebody, hey, I got a gig, I can't do this, then you, you know, go for something else. I see. Um, I mean, for the most part, we kind of had like day commitments like a few weeks out at least so we know hey we're going to shoot this on saturday the 24th and and um but overall commitment uh that takes a lot it takes more and it's funny you bring that up because that is why there is a change in cast three episodes in because we had uh, a mark who was who was the um this is these are the funny stories of making this who was the you know the other detective i'm laughing and because I re- two, i'm remembering why you know how it happened in the program that he was removed. He, he died yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh mark works on he worked in in reality and he worked on on big reality shows like deadliest catch and stuff and he got two episodes in and we we're getting ready to continue and then he got a job that took him to texas for at least a year and we were like well you're gonna come back and and do this and he it just became clear like it wasn't gonna happen with any regularity yeah. and his job which is very successful at and has done well didn't allow him the focus that it would have required to and commitment so at that point we just we had to like had to kill him off well we had to make a decision it's how do we go forward with this and so we, we i you know had a lot of ideas one was to just recast him and and either never mention it which it happens a lot in like yeah. especially in the 80s and 90s oh, yeah, you know yeah. famous famously the mom on um, uh, first Prince of there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The mom just changed actresses yeah. halfway through. No explanation. Um, no explanation. And so that was that was one of the ideas. I actually had a really funny idea, and I still would have loved to have done it, but uh, we couldn't make it happen. Which was that they're driving along and stop at like a Seven Eleven or something, and then the <laughs> first guy gets out. is like, "Hang on, I'll be right back." Goes in. You don't even move the camera after a minute or two comes back and it's a different actor. Like, okay, let's go. And that's all you get. That's ex- oh, and never, never mention it again. That's brilliant. Uh, it would have been so funny, oh. but it became, it became clear that this wasn't feasible. And also like both actors, the prior and the latter weren't as interested in like playing the same character or like that character being played by somebody else. And then Daniel coming in and playing the same character. And also it kind of didn't fit. It just, I don't know. So it, so that was why it was born out of like, we're just going to change the cast and we're going to give this a reason. Um, and I, I think that like, I mean, ultimately the show, what was better off for it? Because I think there was also like the first two episodes, it's 
there's not a huge differentiation between the two guys. They're kind of operating as, as you know, a two-headed monster uh, in a way. And then having a new actor come in and this added uh, story, because that's what it brought a lot of it to, was like now you have like a, 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 which is another trope, that like new partners aren't getting along. They're both sort of alphas. And then they learn to work <laughs> yeah. together in the end. Yeah. Um, so like th- that brought a lot to it. And it's 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 funny because that third episode in and the fourth episode and all the scenes in the police station but that was our last day of shooting so and it was the only day we had we had with bob uh so we and we had that was our biggest day by far both most expensive biggest crew and most pages we shot so we, that was where our, <laughs> I, most of our money went to that day and shooting in that police station. But it, like as a small project, had huge uh, benefit to the show because it looks great. Our crew did an amazing job. And it was a police station set. So there's yeah. a, 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 a studio, not like a Warner Brothers, but a small studio downtown that, has all kinds of small different sets. So, you know, they have a bar set, they have like a a hospital set, an office set. So they had this police station set and we had toured a few of them kind of like looking for one. There was one that was beautiful and it would have been amazing. It was actually where they shot the pilot for Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Okay, yeah. And and a, a lot of people don't pick up on this, but a lot of shows, like if you watch episode one of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, episode two, and really pay attention to the set. You can see it's two different places. The <laughs> office is another example. Yeah. <clears throat> and there's small changes that are made because, oh. you know, you shoot a pilot, you're not going to probably build a big set for one episode. Right. Go. Right. But then the show gets picked up. You're like, oh, we need a permanent home that we control yeah. every day. There's so, so many anyways, small one, little things, the inner workings of making this stuff happen. Uh, it's, film, filmmaking is logistically one of the most difficult, uh, I think, professions out there. Like I, being on a, a producer who's what's known as a line producer or uh, is which is usually like you're the logistics focused producer is one of the hardest jobs and well compensated. But yeah. it's tough. It's tough. It's a lot to of responsibility. There's a lot of logistics, a awesome. lot of logistics there. I mean, it's, it's huge, you know, and when you're doing it yourself, like it all falls on you to make do, you know, and like, uh, and me as being the, the sort of like, you know, that role in this project, like I, I'm not like pretentious enough to say I'm the producer too, because I'm mean, stupid. I'm going to take a producer credit, even though you end up doing most of that work yourself or yeah. not most of it, a good chunk of that work yourself. Um, it's why diminish uh, credit from somebody else like Miguel, who was our producer. Why take that away from him? Because like yeah. he drove so much of this, you sure. know, yeah. and it's just, it's part of that responsibility still falls on you, but ultimately you're not, that's not your focus. So, right. And, and he brought so much of it just to fruition more so than I could have ever done on my own. 
So big, big credit to Miguel. So let me, let me um, ask you, let me ask you in these, uh, we, we have about seven minutes, uh, seven minutes. Okay. Um, going forward, is it too soon to start looking forward now? Is there things that you want to do to, to push this out there to get more people watching it right now? It's available on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, there, are, there are, I mean, we've, part of it is, is there's certain web festivals, web series festivals that we're, you know, submitted to and waiting to hear back from. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also different outlets. Uh, there's a, a, that, that sort of like will host these and, and these kind of shows. I mean, all of these shows, a show of the size of web series, it's up to you. You're that's the other part of the DIY is not only making it, but you have to promote it yourself. Um, and that's the most difficult part because how, with so much pulling for people's attention, how do you get eyes on something? You come on on my podcast and you get a few thousand people, a few thousand people in Norway to watch you. (laughs) Yeah. And hopefully, you know, the people who watch it like it and they recommend it to somebody else and, and, and the same, and you kind of just get, that you grow an audience that way in this, in this day and age. Um, but like prior to YouTube, how did you get people to watch anything? You had to play in a, yeah. a film festival yeah. and that was your only outlet, you know, yeah. like how many probably tens of thousands of short films were made that either never got seen or played a festival a few times. And that was the life of them. Well, how, and, how big, but now, how big <clears throat> and how active is this? Uh, you know, is there a forum, you know, is there a, a, a a gathering of people who are, you know, is there, is there some kind of festival, uh, whether it's nationwide or whether it's international, where there's a crowd that is there specifically for for web series? Oh, there's there's a number of festivals okay. across across the world. I mean, there's one in uh, Minnesota that we're I think is first up. We're supposed to hear from. Um, if anybody from that festival is listening, I would really like to <laughs> be a part of it and be a part of your program this year and come to Minnesota. I've never been. Um, and I you know there's one in Rio, there's one in, in, you know, various parts of the country and like these things exist, uh, not quite as much as like a normal film festival. Okay. There's obviously way, way more of those that play like features and shorts, but, um, but what series are hard too, because you're not going to, play the entire thing that's true a, yeah. you know it's i mean some festivals do but like that's hard it's that is what if difficult. you have an hour an hour and a half of content you know we're at like i think 52 minutes with credits um but that's hard to program it is in like and our show is that we do have the benefit of just one story so like you can sit there and watch 52 minutes and like you haven't seen you know, you're not watching various stories and like, um, but there's still, it's hard. So that's why it's like focused on, you know, YouTube is like an ideal format. Could you see yourself, you know, I, I'm not sure how far along in the writing process you are to, to con- continue this, but could you see yourself writing this into a feature length film? um i mean it could be i've written a pilot version of it yeah um 
<clears throat> which is just designed for like a half hour, uh, which kind of like, um, you know, takes some elements from what's there and expands upon, upon them and, you know, expands the cast and stuff. I don't know if you've seen the show Ted Lasso no. uh, on Apple TV. I High, no. highly recommend it. Um, it's on Apple TV, like one of Apple's originals. Jason Sudeikis is the lead, and it's about a American football coach who uh, is hired to coach a Premier League team, even though he knows nothing about soccer. And it's a very positive, uplifting show. It's yeah. very funny. Um, but it itself was based on the shorts that uh, they did for NBC Sports, oh. where it was the same premise, and but these are like five-minute shorts, you know, and um, no real story there. It's just kind of this character, and he's, yeah. you know, it's just a goofy sketch. But that is expanded into pilot form, and you need to... So, like that's kind of the same idea where I've taken the small thing and made it as if it were, you know, written as if it were for to be a real show. And I don't know, it was an exercise. Maybe it'll turn into something. Maybe it won't. Yeah. Um, that's a lot. You know, it's a lot of throwing spaghetti against the wall <laughs> in this business. <laughs> so, so th- does that mean then that you have a lot of other scripts to uh, to other projects that are laying around that you haven't gotten out oh, there oh yet? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I have I have a couple other shorts I'd really love to shoot this year um, that are like you know four page. Well, I say four pages. That means nothing to most people. Generally speaking, a page of script is a minute of screen time. Yeah. It's not a hard and fast rule, but that's a generalization. So there's the little shorts that aren't continuing. I mean, I have another season of this. I'm in the middle of writing um, that we're not going to get to shooting before the end of the year, but, you know, just to be realistic, but that's okay. Um, Hopefully early next year. Um, And then, you know, I have pilots that I've written, which are samples. Um, uh, I haven't written a feature in a long time. I did when I first started, and I kind of lost interest in it. Oh, really? I do have an idea. I keep, well, yeah, I just was drawn to television okay. more. Yeah. Um, and like right at the, the sort of like coming out of film school, early career was sort of like the boom time for, uh, I shouldn't say the boom time, but like the beginnings of like good TV. Yeah. Um, you know, like you had Lost and you had Breaking Bad and you had Mad Men and, and shows were starting to become something then different than like what they, what they had then. Yeah, yeah. And it became a different means of telling a story. So we became very interested in that. So how long until we can expect to see the newest installment of Vice Force? Well, uh, I mean, like I said, we're not going to, we won't, if I'm being honest and realistic, we're not going to shoot before the end of the year. Um, but ideally, but that's just the beginning the first, of shooting. How long do you think the shooting will take? Well, that's, that's the key thing. It's like having learned from doing this the first time, it, it was kind of like as available as we could is how right. we shot the first season. But will you have and a new focus now? A different focus. Yeah, I mean, you you have a different story, and and I have a few like uh, milestones, like I, I milestones I know I want to hit, and scenes that I know I want to have, mm. but the story itself is, you know, I'm finding that right now. I, um, I know I know that we're we're 
going to move in a different direction, a little bit of a different direction that'll keep the spirit of the show, but it'll change it up a little bit. Um, I don't want to spoil it because it's a big joke in the first episode. Um, and if any, I don't, you know, it's just better the less you know going yeah, into don't something. Spoil it. Yeah, I, don't I, spoil I, it. Yeah. Uh, I'm not as pretentious to say like, oh, it's going to be all over the internet, but I just feel like anybody who's watching it would enjoy it more not knowing it's coming. Um, well, I, I want to... So, yeah, so... No, go ahead. Go ahead, sorry. No, I was... I was, I was saying, so... Yeah, go ahead. Again. I did it again. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 we were both doing it. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's the key. And so it's like going into it a second time, having done this before, I would want to like say we're going to shoot all free up a month or two uh, or three, however long it's going to take. So we can shoot this as quickly as possible. Just knock it and out. Having, right. Just knock it out. Having all the elements in place too. We're not going to change cast. That's going to cost us a while. We're not going to, you know, we're going to bring some people back. We're going to add new people. And, um, and so everybody, to, so everybody that was in this first season is coming back to the second. They've already committed to it. I, oh no, no, no! I, outside of our leads, I have no idea. Well, I'm so, yeah, I guess uh, I'm talking I mean, about the leads. I'm t- yeah, like you know, Bob yeah. and Taylor, and yeah, yeah, they're coming. Back. Yeah, they're all they're all committed. I have a plan for uh, the character of Nine Volt because um, he's he loves it too, and what, I, what there's a, a way to bring character. him back. It's, I forgot all about Nine Volt. Man, that guy was something else. <laughs> Marcus, Marcus, that's Mark Jacobson. He's so funny and he's so good. And you can see he's been working a lot lately. He's been getting Does a he? lot of, of, of good parts and shows. And hopefully we can do this before he blows up or Daniel and Taylor too. Um, and they're not available anymore. So, um, <laughs> although I, w- I would rather see them succeed. So, uh, hey, if you need a new nine, volt, they- if you need a new nine, volt, <laughs> I'll, I'll- <laughs> Well, it's funny because Mark is looks very different than when we shot this. Oh, okay. Um, and and that's going to play into his role in the in the thing. And it's and that's and that's kind of what I mean by like using the resources you have. Yeah. So it's yeah. like I the idea originally he was kind of like that huggy bear character yeah. who you know they keep coming back to for information except he's not he doesn't know anything i mean he knows stuff but like they're just like i we don't know how to so but once i you know once he kind of changes image i mean he, he lost some weight his hair is a little different and i'm like well we can't have him be that character anymore yeah. so then it becomes well you write to what you have so um that's so that cool. kind of gave me an idea yeah so now that gives me an idea yeah. of what to do with him the next time um you know and and see in, incorporate his transformation into your your story yeah. and i think that that's true at any level it's if you're really like i mean if you're making a feature you kind of have this idea of what it's going to be and like you can if you have the money you can cast and and towards that but when you're especially when you're making a show like you have to kind of find a way and this happens a lot on, on various uh, like big budget shows you sometimes have to find ways to incorporate the the things uh, from your cast into into the narrative yeah. of your show. It could be something so simple as like this character is a or this actor is a great singer. How do we bring that into our show? Or maybe they you know. Or it could be something like so I don't know 
so simple as like, oh, they have a scar on their face. How yeah, do you write how did in get that, that scar? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's creativity. Like Michael K. That's good creativity yeah. and direction. Yeah, yeah. And and knowing that that these are your what you have and how do you write to it and how do you you know. And I'm trying to think. I know Michael K. Williams like has this big scar across his yes, face from. Yeah. I don't remember when exactly in his life he got it, and I know that it's been touched on here and there as part of the narrative of whatever he's on. Um, thankfully, it doesn't define all of his roles, but but it's that kind of stuff that like yeah. you know. If it pushes the story, it's worth writing a good piece to to you know mention it and bring it into the storyline. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So anyway, listen, man, I, um, <clears throat> it's, it's seven minutes after midnight here and I have a half naked, oh, I have a half gotta... naked Norwegian woman in bed waiting for me. <laughs> oh yeah. So you got to get to <laughs> she, that. She, yeah, to that. <laughs> she's only yeah. half, she's only half naked now. She used to sleep naked, but the love is fading. So now she's only half naked. <laughs> Plus, it's probably colder than, than actually, it is here. Actually, it's really interesting how my body has adjusted to the temperatures here. Because today, for example, it was maybe 67, 68 degrees. And oh, that's I'm, nice. Yeah, but it's hot as you know what. It's mm. hot to me now. You know, if it's in the upper 60s, low 70s, man, it's a heat wave. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's very nice. Right, it's yeah. like seventy-five here and perfect. Yeah. But in come September, it's going to be you know a hundred every day. It's going to be miserable. Um, there's a lot of beautiful places. There's a lot of beautiful places in California, but I think the heat would kill me. I don't think I would be able to handle that. Yeah, that's the key is just being somewhere near the ocean. Yeah. Because yeah, <laughs> yeah. so, it just keeps you cool. The yeah. desert is is no man's land. Oh, I don't God. know how people live out, God. live out there like Palm Springs. And it's 120 yeah. with regularity. You my know, older like, brother, oh. my older brother used to live in Victorville and I just, thought, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how he survived. No, not, not for me. And I'm, you know, from Florida where it's like hot and humid, but just knowing that, I can escape to the ocean if I need to. Yeah, is, yeah. is key. Oh, I love I, the ocean. I've never, I yeah, love it. Our place. I've never lived. Never, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was saying I've never lived more than 45 minutes from the ocean, yeah. and I never want to. Yeah, no, I uh, <laughs> I've come to love the ocean. Our place way up north on the island is it's on an island, and it's the the ocean mm. is you know 50 yards in front of our house. That's our front yard. Oh, beautiful. So, beautiful. Yeah, love it. Love it. But listen, Eric, we, we, I, I enjoyed yeah. this, this conversation, but I'm going to have to ask you yeah, already to come back because I didn't oh, okay. get, I didn't get into your experience in California the way I wanted to. Oh. I loved everything well, else. Um, I loved everything else that we talked about. Um, and uh, for me to do a three or four hour long episode is nothing new. I've, I've done that. But now oh, it's but well, now the, it's 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 just it's late. <laughs> yeah, it's, no, I totally. Yeah. I'm happy to come back and and hopefully we can find a time that's a little earlier for you. Yeah. Um. Next time. No, this this is normally so. a good time. It's just been a long day. There's been a lot of me- media stuff going on. Like I said, the news has been contacting me a lot. Yeah. So it's kind of I'm I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the hours now. But um, no for, for those people who are listening, I want you all to know. You know, Eric is only the first installation. 
uh, it's going to be a series, if you will. I'll be speaking with <clears throat> some more of the cast members uh, from this fantastically funny and, and incredibly entertaining, incredibly well-written uh, web series called uh, Vice Force Vice Force Action Squad. So, um, which is uh, available on YouTube. Uh, go just search Vice Force Action Squad. We're the only go. one. There, you're the only one. I love it. Vice, the only one. Vice Force Action Squad. Straight ahead. No uh, twists and turns to make. Type that in on YouTube. Watch that series. And make sure you start with episode one and <laughs> yeah, watch you know? them in order. And I have That's to say, a key thing. And I have to say, I sat and watched the whole thing straight through. Uh, well. Actually, Fantastic. the first day I watched the first four episodes and then I had to stop because I had some work to do. But then I went back the day after and started over again with episode one and then watched it all the way through. And uh, I, oh, you know, I'm so glad yeah, people can do it however they want. But I recommend watching it all the way through. For me, it was so funny and the storyline was so good. I just I had to get it all in. So for those of you who are I'm watching glad, or I'm listening, that, I think that's the way to do it. Sit down, watch the whole thing and share it with somebody. Put it yes. out there. Tell people about it. This deserves to be seen by as many people as possible. 100 percent. I'm totally. And we're, we're also on, on Twitter. Uh, at Vice Force AS on Twitter. We're on Facebook. You can just search Vice Force Action Squad. Uh, reach us there. Uh, if you want to email us, it's Vice Force Action Squad at gmail.com. If you don't want to talk to us, that's fine too. I <laughs> totally understand. You've heard a lot today. Um, but yeah, watch the show. That's, my, that's the biggest thing. Watch the show. Uh, it's fun. It's a lot there, of fun. There's. Yeah. Well, thank you, John, for having me on. I appreciate that. Thank you for coming on, Eric. Um, oh, you're don't, welcome. Uh, don't hang up. I'm going to sign off here with my viewers okay. and listeners, and then I'm going to talk to you for another second uh, when I okay. shut off the camera here. So that was today's okay. episode of the Coming On Podcast with John Allen. Uh, my guest today was Eric Ernst. He is the writer and director of Vice Force Action Squad, available on YouTube Watch it, share it, and then watch it again, and then share it again. Do that about, I don't know, 10, 20, 30, 40,000 times and help Eric and his gang uh, have a little bit of success with this. Um, Eric Ernst, everybody. Bye, y'all. Thank you, guys. Have a good night. Okay, man. <laughs>